This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It's no secret uh, that there's a lot going on in the world right now, and we're going to keep you uh, up to date on the latest happening in this uh, war in Ukraine, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now entering its fifth day, and uh, it's really just very troubling images coming out of Ukraine: violence, people uh, worried about their own future, worried about their lives, worried about their homes, explosions. Being heard inside Kiev. Uh, we're going to get into this in a big way next hour when Colonel Douglas McGregor is going to be here. We're going to get his analysis on the uh, whole Russia-Ukraine situation and what America's role really should be in terms of the next step in this dispute. And what he thinks Putin is going to do next. So we're going to get into that with Colonel McGregor coming up at about 2.15. But I'm reminded whenever there's uh, tragic stories in the news or even just disconcerting stories in the news – I'm reminded of the first episode of Saturday Night Live that took place after September 11th, over 20 years ago. And Lorne Michaels is out there with the cast and the mayor at the time, uh, my colleague Rudy Giuliani, and Lorne Michaels, and I I should have pulled the audio of them saying this, but Lorne Michaels with the cast behind him of Saturday Night Live turns to Rudy Giuliani and says, is it okay to be funny again? And Mayor Giuliani says in his own inimitable style, why start now? Now, um, I thought that was very funny at the time, but it also really, I think, reminded people of the importance of finding laughter at times when uh, it's so depressing in terms of the news. Now, we could easily do four hours about death, destruction, and everything that's wrong in the world on all seven continents, but that's such a downer, unfortunately, and a lot of times you just need to find a way to smile. And somebody who is a master at finding a way to smile, even through very tough times, is my friend, Dr. Jeffrey Gurian. He is a legendary comic, a comedy writer, a host, an author, a producer. And the doctor comes not from a Ph.D. in comedy, but because he was a former dentist. And I am thrilled that he is uh, joining me in studio today. Jeffrey, it's great to see you again, my friend. Frank, it's always good to be with you. You have such a great energy and a wonderful show. Thank and you. It's well, always fun I, to be on. At, at the risk of sounding yeah. patronizing, uh, your your energy is infectious, and so is your sense of uh, optimism. And I'm thrilled that you've uh, written this new book, and I want to talk to you about it. But, uh, you know, speaking about what I was just uh, talking about, you look at what's happening in terms of Ukraine, people dying, and uh, a lot of depressing things. How do you find um, how do you find in uh, doing humor, writing humor, performing humor, or even just joking around with friends and colleagues informally when there's so many depressing things going around? Should people feel guilty at all about making jokes or uh, you know laughing at jokes when there's so many tragic things happening? Well, it's a very interesting question. Laughter saves us, by the way. But I don't believe in making jokes about very serious things that are going on in the world. There are people dying, and people are not going to take it well when you do that. I know some comedians that are friends of mine that have gotten in trouble for, you know, too soon, people say, too soon. 
you know. And uh, I personally, I don't talk about things like that when I perform. I talk about things that I think are funny. It's a very thin line when, when something very disturbing is going on. There are some comedians that can tackle it. There are a few comedians that talk about very controversial things. If you know Andrew Schultz, if you know Mark Normand, they're, they're very talented writers and they're very clever and they can take a topic that some people could be could possibly be offended by and speak about it in a way where the people who would be offended are actually laughing and applauding. Mm -hmm. So it depends on the particular comedian. I think the best example of that uh, too soon issue was Gilbert Gottfried. Yeah, uh, that's who I was thinking Who got into some (laughs) trouble while he was the Aflac spokesman. And what what was the circumstance? What was the particular tragedy that he had made a joke about? You know, Uh, I was with him that night, and he, he actually allowed me to be the spokesperson for it. I was there with him that night when it happened, and he was so upset because he's not the kind of person that would hurt somebody's right. feelings. Right, very nice guy. Yeah, and um, and for many years he was my favorite comedian, so I know him a very long time. And to be honest with you, I don't remember the details of what he did. I just remember that that was the night he got fired, Yeah, and everybody was talking about it, and I was with him, and I, at the time I think I was a regular on Sirius XM, and I said, is it okay? He goes, please, go on and speak for me. You know what I think it was? It was at uh, a friar's roast um, because Shecky Green came on as my guest on the radio, and we were talking about I remember. It, it was a joke. I, I don't remember. Shecky Green was going to quit the Friars Club because of something that, that Gilbert said. It was, about the, uh, it was right after the Japanese uh, the earthquake disaster in Japan. That's what it was. I think that had to do with, yeah, I think it was. And I just remember that some people were so upset. As I said, Shecky Green was threatening to quit the Friars Club if they didn't do something about what Gilbert said. Do you think that Aflac was a little bit too quick to get rid of Gilbert Gottfried, who'd been the voice of that, uh, the duck, right? Or yeah, the yeah. Aflac duck, yeah. You know, corporations mm-hmm. do that these days. They jump on things immediately. They're so afraid of losing business because in in our society right now, comedy is so difficult for certain comedians because there's a segment of the population that cannot wait to be offended by something. Oh, it's, it's so true. And They're I'm, sitting home right now hoping that we'll say something yeah, that exactly. they could be offended by. But stay tuned. I'm sure we'll get to you. <laughs> I'm sure we'll offend you somehow over the course of the next four hours. And that's why I'm honestly so grateful to work for John Katsimatidis, who doesn't start, uh, you know, losing sleep every time somebody threatens to uh, boycott uh, his radio station because of something controversial that one of us says or that there's somebody somebody on it. And uh, I think that's a spirit that's far too lacking in the uh, media client, the the media climate and the media environment uh, today. I I think he's wealthy enough to be independent. That's right. Thank you. He doesn't care. He doesn't. There are certain people that don't owe anybody anything. Mm. And I think, I mean, what he does is great. And he's packed the station with wonderful people who carry a great message. That, no, Every that, show is so great. I, I couldn't agree with you more, obviously. In, in terms of comedy, we've heard the complaint often now from uh, people like Dave Chappelle, uh, from people like Kevin Hart, from people like Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, that because of the the climate that you just described, where you have this, and it's magnified tremendously by the internet, where you have this uh, this whole chorus of critics that just waits to erupt in outrage over something, 
that it's very difficult to do comedy these days. Do you find that that's the case? Do you find that it's more difficult to do comedy because of that environment? Not for me. I've, I've actually left out a couple of things. I have a Chinese girlfriend, and her English was very bad. And she's given me a lot of material just by things that she said. Oh, I can imagine. Like one day she told me that she had to take a test. She worked in, in a, a hospital where all the patients, most of them are Chinese, so she's able to get by. And she said she had to take a test. And I said, what kind of test do you have to take in a hospital? And she said, mobile toys. Mobile toy. It took me an hour to figure out she was trying to say multiple choice. <laughs> so, and that's true. <laughs> you know, and, and if we have a fight, she'd be, I, 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 I go to my loom. And, and I'm like, I didn't know you had a loom. <laughs> what are you, spinning straw into gold in there? <laughs> so, you know, but I say things like, you know, I would talk about things in a very positive way. The Chinese people are the smartest people in the world. They have to be. They figured out how to speak Chinese. It's very, very hard to speak Chinese. So if I do something, I try to do it in a positive way because I love everyone, and I don't want anyone to feel bad. So I don't really do jokes that would be considered controversial. There's a lot of people that do, though, and it's very hard for them to perform. Oh, I, I can imagine. I can certainly imagine. All right. Uh, tell me about this new book, Facing Adversary, Adversity, Stories of Courage and Inspiration. Your last couple of tri- trips here – We've talked about some of the adversity that you faced, uh, specifically your battle with COVID. This was before it was a mild Omicron strain. This is when it was when it was COVID. serious. And, and COVID, you had, uh, yeah. COVID pneumonia, double pneumonia. And Single wasn't good enough for me. You were hospitalized, and you mm-hmm. had a very tough time. And honestly, the sense of optimism that you kept throughout that whole. Uh, enterprise was very, very inspiring to me and many of our listeners. You've written a book, Facing Adversity. What's this book all about? You know, I've always been fascinated by people who overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles. And in my own life, you know, I've had a few. I had, you know, this widow-maker heart attack, and I stuttered very badly. I've talked about that on your show before. I stuttered through my 20s and beyond into my 30s. That I would block on certain words. I couldn't get it out. That is a minor obstacle compared to the people that I wrote about. Twenty years ago, I started collecting stories from newspapers and magazines, true stories of people that overcame unbelievable difficulties in their lives. As I said, I've just been fascinated by that because some people crumble from their obstacles and other people rise above them. And that is – Always has always fascinated me. So while I was recovering from COVID, I was in the house for months, and I keep folders of these articles that I cut out. And I decided now is the time for me to write this book because people need inspiration and hope. People have been suffering for two years, and a lot of people are engaging in self-pity. They feel sorry for themselves. They're in a very bad place emotionally. And I thought, I want to write a book that will give them inspiration by reading what other people have overcome. And there are stories in here... One of the stories that just blows me away, a little three-year-old boy put his hands in in a machine and it cut off his hands. Mm. And his father happened to be a surgeon, but not that kind of surgeon that does re-implantations. And And the mother was a nurse. The father takes the little boy to the hospital and it's a holiday and there are no surgeons that can reattach his hands. So the father does it. He tries it for the first time. He operates for nine hours and reattaches the little boy's hands, but they're not functional. The grandfather is a martial artist, Mm. and he trains this little boy every day to regain function in his hands, and that little boy grew up to be a famous spinal surgeon. Wow. 
He runs the spinal surgery department at a hospital in Colorado. And that's... You talk about overcoming adversity. That's a textbook example. It's a textbook example. You you also have a, a very interesting story in here from homeless to Harvard, uh, which sort of self-explanatory, but you chronicle someone that ended up in the Ivy League coming from very, very humble beginnings. What was what was that story? That story brought tears to my eyes, and I'm not exaggerating. It was about a young girl. Both of her parents were heroin addicts. They both had AIDS. They both passed away eventually from AIDS, and her dad was living in a homeless shelter. Her mom passed away, and she became homeless at around 15 years old. But she was so smart that she got into a special school, and she won a scholarship uh, by writing an essay for the New York Times about what she had to overcome in her life. It was a contest. And... In this special school, she won a trip to Harvard, and when she saw the school, she said, I would love to go here, but I don't know how I'm going to afford it. So she wins this $12,000, and she was so smart that she graduated graduated from this high school in two years out of four, and Harvard had never accepted anybody who didn't go to high school for four years. But when they met her and she told them her story, they made special arrangements to take her on a full scholarship. Wow. My goodness. And she's a very successful woman today. There are so many great stories in here. Um, We're not going to go through all of them. I want to encourage people to get the book. It's called Facing Adversity. It's by Dr. Jeffrey Gurian. You write the book in a very interesting manner in that you you chronicle it by year. And so you really have been working on this for over two decades. Over 20 years, yeah. I wasn't sure how to... You know how to arrange the chapters, and I said the best way for me to do it is to is to do it in the year that I found the story. And what was interesting was that I, I searched each story, I looked up the people to see what they were doing today, and I added that in. And most of the many of them have become motivational speakers, like Nick uh, Nick Vujicic was born without arms and legs, no arms, no legs, and I saw him recently on the Oprah Show, and he's become. A not only a worldwide motivational speaker, he's married to a beautiful woman and he has four children. Wow. A woman saw him speaking at an event about his books and she was drawn to him. And she said the fact that he had no limbs didn't matter to her. Mm. That is an amazing person to me, someone who can overlook something like that. And uh, Absolutely. And, and she married him and he has four children. Meanwhile, the singles bars are filled with tall, handsome guys with all their limbs, uh, and they can't get a date. And, and uh, you know, it's amazing to me that you could find a woman that uh, doesn't make a prerequisite for marriage uh, immediately taking out the garbage as soon as it's filled to capacity. Exactly. And that's really, really something. <laughs> that's something. I think, that's I think my find. wife can learn a thing or two from, uh, from Nick's wife. Now, um, we, I hear all sorts of stories, both people who call me on the air and people who – email me uh, privately, detailing all sorts of very, very serious adversity. We have one listener who is trying to get a kidney transplant. She's uh, on dialysis. She's very sick. I have another, we have another listener, a friend of mine. She's in the hospital right now, some complications for some uh, cancer surgery. Other people have had uh, loved ones pass away, and they find themselves totally devoid of any sort of human companionship for the first time in their lives, mm. uh, many of them older and uh, really are in just incredibly 
lonely. Uh, another listener has uh, uh, described how uh, some siblings of hers have essentially um, built her out of uh, their mother's inheritance, and now she finds herself in very serious financial straits. And I, I really always wish that I could do more for these people. And I, and I, unfortunately, the overwhelming amount of the time, there's nothing I can do. I'm wondering what advice, given your chronicling of all these stories and you sort of being what I'll, what I'll characterize as a happiness expert, what advice can you give to these people who are facing, um, in many cases, things that, have, that are in no way their own fault, seemingly insurmountable odds when it seems so bleak for them? What advice can you give them about how to maintain or to gain a more positive perspective and keep a more positive attitude? Advice is easy to give. You know, advice is just words, and words sometimes can fail you. And when people are really facing terrible adversities like a life-and-death situation, it's very hard. I had to go to two funerals within the past couple of weeks of relatives of mine who died very unexpectedly. And um, as far as advice, you know, there's a spiritual outlook that every single thing that happens to you is your, is your path. This is what I had to tell myself when I was laying in the hospital with a heart attack and with COVID double pneumonia and with every uncomfortable thing that's happened to me. I don't even want to say bad thing because sometimes bad things turn out to be something good later on. You know, I've, I've lost things that turn out to be something amazing. Um, but what I've had to, to tell myself is that you can't only believe in certain principles when everything is going perfectly in your life. It's when it feels like nothing is going right that spiritual principles come into play. And I had to tell myself that for whatever reason, this is my path. I had to have this heart attack. I didn't know how I was going to come out of it. But I had to have faith that whatever is supposed to happen will happen. And there's, it's out of my control. Mm. The things that happen to people are completely out of their control. Sometimes they cause them, which is a terrible feeling to know that you caused this problem for yourself. But a lot of times it comes out of nowhere. You have no idea what's going to happen to you when you wake up in the morning. And so if you have a strong spiritual belief, not religious, but spiritual, I make a distinction about that in all my books because religion can be wonderful for people, but it tends to divide us because it puts you in a category that other people may not be in. And spirituality brings us all together because all it asks is that you believe in a power greater than yourself, and you could call it whatever you want, nature, the universe, God, whatever is comfortable for you. I, I feel comfortable saying God, and that's fine, uh, but you just have to understand that whatever happens, whether you consider it good or bad, is part of your path, and that... You can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Every person that you know in your life, besides your family, there was a day before you met them. You had no idea you were going to meet them. And then the next day you meet them, and it, they could be somebody very important in your life. So people have no idea. And what you have to tell yourself is that this can't last. It's not going to last. Good things don't last, and bad things don't last. Mm. So even if you're in the midst of something that you think is very bad right now, it's going to change. And if you stay with it, it'll get better. Uh, that, I think, is as good advice as I could hope for or and that a lot of our listeners could hope for. Last week, I uh, had on the program Mark Malkoff. Uh, one of the things that I spoke to him about was this uh, YouTube series that he was doing uh, where he was trying to have dinner with Bill Murray. 
in Oh, I did his show. Uh, well, in looking at show, those yeah. in research for that interview, I watched all these old YouTube interviews that he had done and you were one of his guests. Now, yes. what makes you an authority on on Bill Murray? I had some very unusual circumstances with Bill Murray. We you know, um it was really crazy. I met him many years ago. You know, I got my original start through the Saturday Night Live people when the show really first started through Alan's Weibel. And I used to go up to the show a lot. I was very friendly with Phil Hartman and John Lovitz and Kevin Nealon and those guys. Our uh, friend Joe Piscopo as well. Uh, well, Joe Piscopo yep. was a dear friend. I've done his show. Well, we, You know, we've spoken in recent years. My last book, I went on Joe's show to talk about it. Um so, and I know Joe before he started working out. That's how long I know Joe. I have pictures with him when he was thin, before he get, became so muscular. But uh, one night in my garage, I was having trouble with my car, and Bill Murray tried to fix it. He just walked into my garage. I can't, <laughs> you know, Bill Murray shows up in places where you never expect him to be. He got on the floor under my car to tr- see if he could fix it for me. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, it's, that's Bill Murray. You know, and I don't think he knew me at that point. We had met earlier, but I don't know that he actually remembered did, me. Did he, was he able to fix your car? No, uh, well. he was not. <laughs> but he tried. Okay. That's what counts. All he right. tried. And then, and then I was, you know, I, I, I've also been a comedy journalist for a long time. I cover the comedy scene, and so I was covering a film that he did. I don't remember which one, but we took a bunch of pictures together and we hung out and. He's wonderful. He's just a very interesting character. But that was Mark Malkoff's. When you said it, I flashed back on it because I hadn't seen Mark in a while. Yeah. No, I, I'm a big fan of Mark's as, yeah, as well as Yeah, very yours. unusual things. That's, that's yeah. as you know, uh, yeah. that, that is my style. Perhaps that explains my fondness for you. Uh, you, of course, and people will remember this, uh, you were responsible or you were the prime person for uh, behind the Too Much Tuna phenomenon uh, explain what the deal was with too much tuna yeah that's a crazy and curtis is involved in that let me tell you oh that story. i did not know this is a crazy story so years ago before nick kroll and john mulaney were really famous they came over to me at a party i don't remember what it was i just remember that chevy chase was there they came over to me and they said can we take a picture with you and i said sure and so they take a picture, and the next thing I know, it's on their Facebook page, uh, each of them. And Nick says to me, if I ever get a show, I want you to be on it. I said, great. A lot of people have said that to me, but nothing comes of it most of the time. Years later, I get a call one day. I'm at my desk working, and I get a call from L.A. Nick Kroll would like you to come out to L.A. and be on Kroll's show. He got his own show on Comedy Central, which was a, a big hit show. So I fly out there, and... Uh, we don't know what I'm going to do. It's mostly improv. And I wind up being the very first person in show business to be pranked with too much tuna. <laughs> Nick Kroll and John Mulaney think it's very funny to give people a very huge tuna sandwich. It's about this tall. And, and so um, they wound up doing a hit show on Broadway called Oh Hello. And they had me open the show for them. Now, in the show, they reference Curtis Lewa. Really? Yeah. They talked about New York and the whole thing, and his. they mentioned his name. They don't know that I'm dear friends with Curtis Lewa for many years. Right. You were Curtis's dentist. I was Curtis's dentist. That's how long I know him. So so they 
they had me open the show for them. They made me a jacket. If I knew I was going to tell the story, I would have brought it to show you. You know how Curtis's jacket says Guardian right, Angels? Sure. They made me a jacket that says Gurian Angels. <laughs> and, they had, and they had two models wearing Gurian Angels T-shirts. And I opened the show for them on Broadway. I, and I, I was on the that. red carpet with them. So I brought Curtis to the show as a surprise. They didn't know. I brought Curtis Lewa and Fred Armisen was so excited to meet Curtis they told me afterwards that was his dream to meet Curtis Lee. That's very funny. So he wore his Guardian Angels jacket, and I wore my Gurian Angels jacket. They, they actually, I, I haven't watched the clip yet, but I'm told they actually mentioned the Guardian Angels on Saturday Night Live this past weekend as they were doing a, a segment about the rising uh, rising crime. I don't know if Curtis played the clip on his show on, uh, on Sunday, but uh, it was certainly very interesting that Saturday Night Live has always made the Guardian Angels such a f- focus. Jeffrey Gurian is my guest in studio for the hour. There are not many people that are experts in dentistry, comedy, Curtis, and overcoming adversity. So if you want to question uh, Jeffrey Gurian on any of those topics, you can give us a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. He's the author of the new book, Facing Adversity. There's some terrific stories in here of courage and inspiration, and uh, we're not only going to get Jeffrey to share some stories from this book, but we're going to delve back into uh, one of his more comedic writings and get him to share some stories from that book as well. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by Jeffrey Gurian, dentist, 20-year-plus board-certified dentist. He is also a uh, comedian extraordinaire, very much a comic historian, and someone uh, not only who's uh, very much a part of the comic community, but very beloved by the comic community. He's a host, an author, a producer, a director, and uh, a longtime comedy writer. Uh, These days we're talking about his book, Facing Adversity, which chronicles some terrific stories of courage and inspiration. It's available wherever books are sold on Amazon or any a wide variety of other places. You could also check out Jeffrey's website, ComedyMattersTV.com. That's ComedyMattersTV.com. Uh, Jeffrey, you were kind enough to give me a copy of the book to look through. Can I keep this? Can we, let's turn uh, Jeffrey's mic on if we can there, man. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get you on record as saying oh. I can keep this. Yes, of course you can keep wonderful. it. Wonderful. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it would be my pleasure for you to have it. I'll sign it for you, too, when we're done. Are you um, are you producing any any upcoming comedy shows that our listeners should be uh, aware of? I just headlined the Broadway Comedy Club last Saturday, but it's too late for people to come. Right. I already did it, but I'll let you know when I do my – I was doing I was producing shows at the Cutting Room over the summer, but then when this whole Omicron thing came, I stopped doing them because I wasn't sure – it's very hard to get people to show up. You know, when you're laughing, they say, well, there, there are more germs are in the room, you know. I, I, so I, I people suppose. are freaking out. And it was just so I, I'm going to wait till the spring and then I'll, I'll start producing more shows again. Well, you'll have to keep us posted uh, on sure. that. Uh, 800-848-WABC. Peter is in Manhattan. Peter, you're on with Jeffrey Gurian. Yes, I've been a longtime fan of the old comedians. For example, one-liners, not vulgar, but funny. 
Then people like Stern and even what's the black fellow's name you mentioned that has the makes the millions of dollars. They always resort to the negative lowest common denominator of mankind. Is it because these people have very limited experience like the old Jews used to be funny? Yeah, I know. You know what? I I had the honor of working with Milton Berle and Jerry Lewis and people like that from the golden age of comedy. Comedy was different in those days. First of all, there was no cable TV. If you wanted to do television, you had to be squeaky clean. They were clever. But with the advent of cable TV, when people could say anything, that, you know... So that's what changed it, cable television? I I believe so, yeah, for sure, because now you could say anything you wanted to on cable TV. And a lot of people, a lot of comics pander to an audience. Look, I'm guilty of it too. If I'm in a club... Uh, I don't talk about anything ugly, but I will drop the F-bomb at times uh, just because when it's an audience filled with guys with backwards baseball caps, you know, bros and all, they expect a certain type of humor. Mm. And um, I don't even like it when I do it. I I was performing one night and Jerry Seinfeld was in the room. And every time I I said the F-word, I felt guilty because he always works clean, (laughs) you know, and – I can. I can work squeaky clean, and I have plenty of material like that. But you have to kind of cater to what your audience wants, mm, mm. you know. Um, there are some people who don't have to. I mean, you know, if you're – I can't even think of a name. Well, if you're Seinfeld, like I, I understand that he stopped doing colleges too because right. a lot of comics don't want to do colleges because of the woke atmosphere. People, are, again, are so offended by things. Uh, what year did you start doing comedy as a performer? About 15 years ago. Oh, really? It is that recent? Yeah, yeah. I started writing decades ago. I was writing for, you know, I was writing for Rodney in 1980. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to hang out at his club and he would do my jokes on The Tonight Show and stuff. And, and he was the first big star that I wrote for. But afterwards, you know, I got to, Milton Berle was my sponsor in the Friars Club. I date myself when I say that. But. <laughs> I, I think that's that's phenomenal. But it's a, big a honor. To fame. it's a big honor. Yeah. Do you remember the first joke that you wrote for Rodney Dangerfield? Um, yeah, I, I, I actually do. Uh, he said, you know, I'm all right now, but last week was rough. He said, I went into one of those custom bed shops. I said, what kind of bed would you recommend for a guy like me? He said, single. <laughs> <laughs> Rodney loved that joke, and it was such like a... a a one-word punchline, you know? It's so it's so hard. It, it, it took me about a year to learn how to craft a joke, you know? And I used to bring Rodney tons of jokes. And he'd say, yeah, Jeff, but they got to be funny, you know? <laughs> what was Rodney like uh, off-air? Well, you've heard so many stories about the myth of Rodney Dangerfield. And, uh, I mean, he just seems like such a... An interesting figure for, on so many different levels. What was your experience like with him? He was exactly the same. I mean, really? I went to his house... Uh, a couple of times and he had a big pool table in the middle of his living room and you know in the club he'd walk around in uh, pajamas and a bathrobe but not 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 not, not fancy pajamas and a bathrobe like old pajamas and a bathrobe you know and uh let me i i, I was going to tell another joke that he said to me but i don't think it would go well on the radio <laughs> but he was he was just a funny funny guy the same on and off and you know, his best friend was a guy named Joe Ansis, who was supposedly the funniest guy who never went on stage. Really? He supposedly was the inspiration for Lenny Bruce. You're kidding. They were both they were both aluminum siding salesmen together. Rodney and Joe were best friends. They were together all the time. And Joe was like a hipster 
he had a, an, a, such an unusual way of speaking. I can't even imitate it. But, yeah, if you look him up, Joe Ansis, he's in the book. Why do you think Rodney was not more successful as an aluminum siding salesman? Probably because he was too funny. You know, he dedicated his life to his kids, which is why he didn't start until later in life. He wasn't telling jokes, you know. His original name was Jacob Cohen, and then he became Jack Roy, and he wasn't making it as Jack Roy. And someone suggested to him the name Rodney Dangerfield, and he took that name, and it, it blew up. The same with Engelbert Humperdinck. What was know? his real name? I didn't know that. Oh, I don't I'll remember his real up, name, actually. but Dick Capri opened for him for many years, and Dick Capri was the first comedian that I ever wrote for. Arnold Dorsey. Yeah, uh, Arnold yeah. Dorsey. Who would right. listen to music from somebody named Arnold Dorsey? That's right, true. Exactly. exactly. Engel, Engelbert Humperdinck. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. Uh, 800-848-WABC if you want to ch- chat with Jeffrey Gurian. Do you watch the show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Yes, sure. Uh, I, I didn't see the new season. I think it just came out. It did, but, but, yes. Yeah. I, I'm only up to, I think, the first or second episode. But uh, how real, obviously, you know, that was the late 50s, early 60s. But do you find that that's a realistic depiction, having known a lot of the people that came up in that era, Milton Berle and others? Do you find that's a realistic depiction of the comedy scene in New York at that time? Yeah, I do. Yeah. It, fe- it feels real to me. I, can, I feel nervous when I go on stage. You know, it's like only a person who's done it can know what that's like. It's the hardest thing to do. I mean, I'm sure brain surgery is harder, but, you know, g- getting up on stage and trying to convince strangers that what you think is funny is funny is a very difficult thing to do. Now, to do brain surgery while telling jokes, well, that's, that's, that's got to be tough. That, that's got to be very tough. 800-848-9222. Jennifer's in Boston. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, Frank. Um, I just wanted to say first to you, thank you so much for having Jeffrey on. Every time you've had him on, I just adore him more than the time before. Thank you and, so much. Uh, I just think that um, Jeffrey is a very special kind of person. And... Um, I just feel grace to hear him. I really do. And I, I'm so glad you got through COVID. I'm sorry you had to go through it, but I'm sure you found the silver lining in it. And I, some of the stories you talked about tonight that are in your book, I look forward to getting the book. I'm familiar with them. But um, I'm glad that they touched you. I know when I heard the ones that you referenced tonight, um, they touched me too. And I think it's a great idea. And um, I hope the book will do well. And I hope you stay well. And thanks again, Frank. Uh, great program. Thank, Thank you, you, Jennifer. Thank that's you so much. Nice. That's very that's nice. That's so kind. Yeah, that, no, and uh, that's high praise coming from Jennifer. She could be a tough critic, especially when it comes to me. Oh, yeah. So uh, that, that's very nice. Now, you are a big wig in the world of comedy. The interesting thing is I have no idea where the term big wig comes from. Where does the term big wig comes from? Okay. You strike me as a guy with uh, very large hair, which may or may not be real, as a, a good person to ask that of. Well, it's funny that you chose big wig. These expressions ca- literally came from the 1700s in George Washington's time. And I'm going to read, a, 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 excuse me, I'm going to read a little bit of it for you. See, I said I don't stutter and I'm not getting the words out. Uh, as incredible as it may sound, men and women in those days only took baths twice a year. Believe that May and October. I whether don't know they why they chose those. Whether they, needed, whether they needed it or not, right? And women kept their hair covered, but men would shave their heads because of lice, right? And they wore wigs. And wealthy men could afford good wigs made from wool, but they couldn't wash them. So to clean them, listen to what they did: they would carve out a loaf of bread, put the wig inside the shell of the oh bread, my. and bake it for thirty minutes. 
and the heat would make the wig big and fluffy, hence the term big wig. Wow. And today we use the term big wig to talk about someone who was influential or powerful or wealthy. Big wig, but that's where it came from. Wow. Baking that, a wig inside of a bread. That is uh, wild. I, that surprised me. Now, uh, Sunday nights, our friend Joe Piscopo does the Ramsey Mazda Sundays with Sinatra show right here on WABC. He does a great job. And uh, it's basically a wall-to-wall tribute to Frank Sinatra, they, who they called the chairman of the board. Yep. They called Joe the vice chairman of the board. Now, I'd always assume that that title, chairman of the board, just came from the I don't know the role of being on an off, you know, in an office environment, and you're the head guy uh, on the board of directors. Is there more to it than that? Yes, there's a lot more. Again, in the 1700s, many houses consisted of a large room with only one chair. Believe it, they would have one chair, and they would have a board that folded down from the wall for people to sit on. And the head of the household usually sat in that chair. Everyone else sat on that board or on the floor. Uh, But occasionally, there would be a guest. And if it was a man, he would be invited to sit in the chair during the meal. That was the honor that was bestowed upon him. And to sit in the chair meant that you were important and you were in charge. And they called the one sitting in the chair the chairman. And that's how it become wow. chairman. Jeez. Isn't that amazing? That, or that chairman of the board because they pulled down a board for people to sit on. W- what about the term, uh, like a term like straight-laced? Where does that come from? Straight-laced because ladies wore corsets. And they would lace up the front. And a proper and dignified woman wore, who wore a tightly laced corset would be called straight laced. And wait till you hear about, have you ever heard someone say, mind your own beeswax? Far too many times than I care to have heard it. Well, yes. I always thought beeswax was a funny way of saying mind your own business. Right, that's what I business, would business. Yeah. Listen to this. Okay. In those days, personal hygiene left a lot, <laughs> left a lot of room for improvement. So as a result, many women and men had acne scars, and the women would spread beeswax over their facial skin to smooth out their complexion. And when they were speaking to each other, if a woman began to stare at another woman's face, they told them, mind your own beeswax. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And then should the woman smile, the wax would crack. And that's where it came from, to crack a smile. Oh, that is very funny. And not only that. If they sat too close to the fire, the wax would melt. And that's where they came up with the expression, losing face. Uh, yeah, Isn't that amazing? That is what I'm going to ask you about one more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we spent, we were talking earlier about the gentleman who has uh, no limbs. And I'm guessing that's because he'd overpaid for something and uh, something had cost him an arm and a leg. Where does that expression come from? Again, in George Washington's days, if you look at pictures of George Washington, some of them you'll see him like he's standing behind a desk with one arm behind his back. Another will show both his legs and his arms. In those days, painters were not uh, paid by how many people they painted, by how many limbs were to be painted. Oh, why? So arms and legs are considered limbs, so painting them would cost the buyer more. So hence the expression, it'll cost you an arm and a leg. They <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That <laughs> Love if they, it. If they Love have, it. Because it's hard to paint hands. Arms and legs are harder to paint. So if they wanted to cost less, they would hide. They'd put one arm behind them. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. It'll cost you an arm and a leg. Yeah. Jeffrey Gurian is here. Uh, check out his book, Facing Adversity, Stories of Courage and Inspiration. Uh, we're going to continue with uh, Jeffrey in just a couple of minutes. If you want to comment uh, on anything we're talking about, you can give us a call, 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. Darling, you sent 
That is the great Sam Cooke. You're never going to believe what Sam Cooke's real name was. I'm going to blow your mind with this. Are you ready? Sam Cooke's real name was, I just looked this up, this is true, Samuel Cooke. I mean, what are the chances of that? <laughs> Who would ever believe that? Exactly. The king of soul, Samuel Cooke. Who knew? Amazing. Jeffrey Gurian is here. He's the author of the book uh, Facing Adversity. There's some great stories in this book of people overcoming obstacles in their own life to do some incredible things, including there's a story in here, Jeffrey, about uh, disabled actors in an off-Broadway play. Uh, This is actually a story from just a few years ago, from 2017. What was the story? The story was that, um, and and again, it's not one of the stories that I summarized to talk about, so I'm going to try and do it from memory, but it was was a story about... uh, uh, an actress who became disabled and created a, a theater troupe for disabled actors and put on a um, a play with all disabled actors. And they were so amazing that people didn't know that they actually had disabilities until the end of the show. Um, it's just, just really incredible what this woman was able to do. It, that is incredible, absolutely. One, One, I just want to say that the book just came out, and it's already got almost fifty-five star reviews. You're kidding! It came out right away. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So and people check out the book on uh, Amazon if you want to help other people discover it. A great way to do that is to uh, give a five-star review on Amazon.com and uh, make your comments be heard. That'll help other people. And discover I made the, the price very special for your listeners for the next few days. It'll only be three ninety-nine to download the book. Is that true? Your, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm wow, keeping very it very nice. low to, so that it's affordable for everybody. Because I, I really want to bring inspiration to people who need some hope. That's great. And uh, if you read this book. That's you know, the ebook version of it, right? Yeah, the ebook version now, of it. Now, do you need an e-reader uh, to, ha- to read an ebook, or can you read it on a regular computer or something? Uh, supposedly, you can get it on a regular computer okay, as right. well. Not everybody has a Kindle, but it's available as a paperback also for people who want it. And I, I made that lower as well. Uh, big shout out to, to my friend Nick Barbaro, who gave me a Kindle, which I gave to my wife, and she makes a great use of that Kindle. She uses it uh, a great deal. He keeps trying to win me over to the cause of using a Kindle, but I still prefer the the paper books. Where are you on Kindle versus paper I need book? paper. You, I, yeah. I'm old school. I like to have a, a physical book. It makes me feel better. I have a bunch of stuff on my Kindle. My kids bought me a Kindle as a present, and uh, I use it. But I really prefer a paperback. Uh, last time you were here, we spoke a little bit about one of your previous books, Man Robs Bank with His Chin. For people that didn't hear our previous discussion, remind people what that was about. That was Look, I've been collecting stories for many years. I created GNN, Gurian News Network, which our logo is all the news that's fit to dance to. <laughs> and uh, uh, I used to write for the Weekly World News, which was the precursor to The Onion. So I have stories like, you know, man paints replica of the Sistine Chapel with his beard. <laughs> now, you know how hard that is, Frank? Beard painting, you hardly see beard painting anymore. And, it's a you lost know, art. Well, because even in Brooklyn, everyone has a beard, but they have the short beards. You can't <laughs> right. paint. You, can't, you need a long pointed beard to paint and very strong neck muscles. Um, man killed for giving girlfriend a snail instead of an engagement ring because you can't, you know, she was waiting for years to become engaged. 
and he show and he invites her out to this beautiful restaurant, and she thinks tonight's the night he's going to pop the question. And he read somewhere that in the Fiji Islands, when a man wants to impress a woman, he gives her a tiny snail. So he tried that. He gave her the snail. She was so enraged, she killed the snail and then killed him. Oh, my goodness. A very sad story. My goodness. Very sad story. Uh, Elderly man tours Europe on pogo stick. Now, that is not an easy thing to do. (laughs) 87-year-old Armin Karugian, wearing a tuxedo, by the way, because he says that not enough athletes dress well during their sport. The least they could do, he said, is wear a sport jacket. That's where the name comes from, a sport jacket. You're supposed to most, – you know, most athletes don't dress well. They this wear sneakers. True. You never see athletes in a tuxedo. So man in Georgia arrested for having a high fever. The fever was so high that he began hallucinating. And when it hit 106, cops broke in and charged him with having an illegal fever. And they took him away. The man was too sick to comment. Right? <laughs> Here's, here's one that, that I love. Man impaled on Spike still shows up for work on time. Wow. See, now, that's impressive. A very dedicated – Herb no. Stemp was his name. is an artichoke stuffer. 30 years, had never been late once. Accidentally impaled himself on a spike, and when they separated the spike, instead of going to the hospital, he, he felt it wasn't that uncomfortable. I've always said that the artichoke stuffers are the, the unsung heroes of the food – the culinary community. Well, he decided to wait for his day off. He said his main – his main uh, complaint was that his jacket didn't fit right anymore because <laughs> it's hard to fit a jacket over a spike. It's a very similar story to the man who developed a fully grown turtle shell. Uh, it's he developed st- it on his own naturally? Well, it started on his back as a, just a small bump. But over the next few months, he, you know, he couldn't really see it. It developed into a full turtle shell. And his wife said, you know, he's always been he's always been kind of shy, but now she literally has to coax him out of his shell. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, I'd be curious to see that wife if that uh, snail killer ever gets out of jail. The two of them, <laughs> uh, what a pair they'd make. <laughs> Canadian repairman wakes up with French accent. Now, this is an unusual story. Toaster repairman Herb Trert's wife says they've never done any traveling. So one morning when he woke up, he started addressing her as Mon Cherie in a heavy French accent. She was really shocked. Then he starts wearing a beret, grew a thin mustache, and begins using a walking stick. (laughs) He says he's becoming French against his will. He's even started disliking Americans. (laughs) And he claims it came from getting a shock from one of the toasters. Very unusual story, I I mean, you talk about bizarre. That is is wild. So this is a whole book. So I compiled a book called Man Robs Bank with His Chin, which is another one of the stories for people who like unusual stories. The the story about me is that I stay up all night researching these stories. I find the most unusual stories missed by mainstream media. Yeah, no, I mean it's great. It's great that you're out there being an alternative to the news that uh, that is missing a lot of these stories. Well, yeah, if it wasn't for me, people would know about these Uh, things. Especially now that there's no more Weekly World News, right? Exactly. So it's. I think it's only online now, but it's GNN. Gurian News Network, all the news that's fit to dance to. <laughs> Can folks get that through your website? On my website, right. right if they again, go to the ComedyMattersTV.com, there's a whole section on GNN. ComedyMattersTV.com, 800-848-WABC. Jeffrey Gurian is here. He's the author of the book Facing Adversity. Mike is in Brooklyn. Hello, Mike. Hey, good morning, Frank. How you doing, Jeffrey? I'm doing um, good. 
good, good. I got a question for you with the, the overcoming diversity. Is there anything in the book with uh, uh, people coming over eye problems? Because I have RP, retinitis pigmentosa, and it's stealing my eyesight completely away, and there's nothing they can do about it. I'm completely blind in one eye right now, and the other one is following suit. I do have a story on that, and I'm wondering, you know, there are so many stories in the book that I don't have every story at my fingertips, but there is a story about a person who lost their sight and went on to do unbelievable things. Um, I, I actually, yeah, he's, it's the last story in the book. Yeah, Out of um, Sight. It's called Out of Sight, and, and um, as, I was, as I was writing the end of the book, I came across this story, and I needed to include it because... First, you know, I talk about Stevie Wonder, which was always amazing to me that he had such a huge career. But there was an actor recently who lost his sight, and he's been doing action films as a sightless person. And he said he wants to do things that no one who is sightless has ever done before. He's an actor, and when, you know, he, uh, after he performs, people come over to him and they said, Are you really sightless? Because they couldn't believe it. Because what he does is so accurate, and he's worked so hard on it. He had sight. It wasn't like he was born sightless. He had sight, and then he lost it due to some illness that he had. I don't remember right. what it was called. It's in the book. If you if you get the book, it's on page 151, and it's out of sight. Okay. Uh, the other question is, is it on tape? Do you have that book on tape? No, no, it's not an audio book. Yeah, that's mm. true. If you have a hard time reading it, then it's silly. Yeah, it's a minor technicality. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, a yeah. minor technique. But you know what? It just came out, and I will probably do an audio book. There you go. I think you should. You know, we have a lot of listeners I will. who are visually impaired. I think a, folks would enjoy that. A lot of people like audio books these days. Mike, My first book was audio. Mike, thanks. Yes. Best of luck. Appreciate you listening, and uh, good luck with your 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 issues, and uh, please keep us posted. Yes, okay? thank you so yeah, much. I still mow my own lawn. That's great. That's wonderful. That's great. I put, out, I put out the old Clorox bottles and bump into them. Mike, if you can <laughs> no, see, see you true. have a good sense that's of right. humor, and that's what next gets million, Next million. Thank and Mike, you if you much. can get a ride uh, to uh, to Staten Island, I'd love for you to mow my lawn as well. It might make you feel a little bit more, you know, uh, like you're, you're not dealing with visual issues. 800-848-WABC. Mark's in Rahway. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello there. Um, my God, I can't believe it got on. Jeffrey, I love you. You have... I've been in sales for 35 years, and you have an gl- amazing ability to communicate, first of all. My question is... Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what, what, you're welcome. One of my favorite movies, and I want to see if you agree, The Sunshine Boys, Walter Matthau and George Burns. I, do you believe it's one of the funniest scripts in acting? And secondly, the, the funny thing about that was they talked about an, an, a retired actor's home in New Jersey. Was there such a thing? <laughs> A retired actor? I know that there are retired actors' homes. I don't know if there was one in New Jersey. And yes, it was a very funny movie. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you have good taste in comedy. Well, I, I like you. You're, you're fantastic. I love you. Thanks. Thank you. So, Thank you so much. That's very call. kind Thanks, of you. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. 800-848-WABC. Although, actually, I'm not sure how many more calls we'll be able to get to in the next couple of minutes. But if you want to try and squeeze one in, we'll try. I'll Eight, come back soon. <laughs> yes, you must. Absolutely. Uh, so what else are you up to these days? Are you waiting till the spring to start uh, performing and producing shows again? You're promoting this book, which now, you know, our visually impaired listeners are urging you to record an audio version of that it as well. It takes so much time. Oh, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm I working imagine. on this every day. You know, it's uh, people have no idea. You know, my first it's my eighth book. My first five books were published by publishers. 
who literally do nothing to help you promote the book. It's amazing. People would think that if you have a publisher, a well-known publisher, they'll go out of their way to do it. Everything I get, I had to do on my own. So I started publishing the books on my own. And it's a very, very hard process. I can imagine. How's that worked out? You know what? I have to show you something. I Mm -hmm. brought this. We talk about censorship. Tell me, tell me what offends you about this ad. This ad was was turned down, uh, rejected. Okay, it's for facing adversity, and the ad reads: "Facing challenges, life ever seemed unfair. True stories of people who have overcome unbelievable obstacles will offer much needed inspiration." Are you offended? Not in the least. Okay. Well, so what are they saying? It was rejected. It it doesn't fall within community guidelines. You're, you're not kidding. you're not allowed to speak to people's personal condition. So I so I wrote to them. I said, "How can you write?" So a- who rejected this? Amazon. Amazon rejected. Amazon. So I said, "How can oh. you write a self help book without telling people how it can help them?" It makes no sense. It, it makes zero sense. And and, he, and here's the second one that got rejected again. Facing challenges, feeling overwhelmed and lacking inspiration. True stories of people who have overcome unbelievable obstacles will do the trick. Are you offended? Not in the least. No. Okay. But that was rejected. You know, this is the thing with Amazon is they do stuff like this all the time that drives me crazy. I've heard all sorts of stories like this. But if you're if you've written a book and you you don't have it listed on Amazon, it's like you don't exist. So that's the problem with monopolies like Amazon. It's right. very frustrating. And, and, and it's that same thing of people being offended over nothing. There's it, nothing in crazy. here. It's crazy. Uh, well, uh, send send the cynics and the critics a message. Go to ComedyMattersTV.com. You could uh, learn all about Jeffrey Gurian and check out this latest book, Facing Adversity, Stories of Courage and Inspiration. It's available as an ebook. Three ninety nine for the next few days, at least for our listeners. Jeffrey, it's always a treat to talk to you. It's always very special to be here. Frank. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. Uh, next hour, we're going to get into some of the hot-button issues that are upsetting people. We're going to talk about this war in Ukraine. My guest is going to be Colonel Douglas McGregor. And I have some news on the vaccine front and the vaccine restriction and the COVID restriction front coming right out of New York. In the meantime, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. You know, if you're not starting your Sunday morning by listening to the Cats Roundtable, you are really missing out. Not only are you going to miss out on some great interviews, this morning they had on a uh, fan favorite for this show, uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, but Nigel Farage was on. A whole bunch of folks analyzing world affairs, local affairs. Obviously, with the Russia-Ukraine situation, it's uh, very, very uh, pertinent and uh, very, very important that you start your show with a start your day with a show like that. But one of the things that uh, one of the other reasons you should listen to it is because I'm on it. I'm on for the first half hour of that show from eight to eight thirty. And one of the things that I said, and I stand by this, is I think a lot of the things that Mayor Adams is doing is just terrific. But I thought on the crime issue that it was really uh, short-sighted for him to be firing police officers and teachers when you have um, a crime problem. 
And sure enough, a whole bunch of folks got fired, thousands of city workers, teachers, firefighters, police officers, um, when there was because they didn't get a vaccination. Now we have a little bit of the other side of midnight proudly presents breaking news. Some news breaking uh, just a few hours ago. Vaccine passports will no longer be required in New York City starting March 7th. That is the word from Mayor Adams last night, and he plans on lifting school mask mandates then, too, barring any unforeseen spikes in COVID cases. Uh, The mayor said he plans on following Governor Kathy Hochul's lead in nixing masks in schools, but would make the final determination this Friday. He said, quote, At the end of this week, we'll evaluate the numbers and make a final announcement. If we see no unforeseen spikes and our numbers continue to show a low level of risk, New York City will remove the indoor mask mandate for public school children. But he said starting March 7th, patrons at Big Apple restaurants, gyms and indoor venues will no longer be required to show Proof of vaccination. That is, I think, just great news. And those of you that uh, have not gotten vaccinated and have not been able to go indoors to a restaurant, a gym or an indoor venue of some sort, you will now be able to enjoy some of the fine restaurants that New York City has to offer, some of the fine gyms and uh, some of the fine other indoor venues that uh, people or have been missing out on. Uh, now, I'm vaccinated. I'm an advocate of getting vaccinated. But for whatever reason, people have decided that vaccination is not for them. And now you will be able to go to a restaurant. Uh, the mayor also said, additionally, New York City's numbers will go, will uh, con- continue to go down day after day. And uh, so long as COVID indicators show a low level of risk and we see no surprises this week, They're going to go forward with this on March 7th. They're also lifting key to New York City requirements. Those are the rules imposed last year by former Mayor Bill de Blasio requiring proof of vaccinations at uh, all sorts of other places. So I think this is great news, and uh, I applaud the mayor for this. My only criticism here is that he's waiting till March 7th. I wish... This would be effective immediately. But look, beggars can't be choosers. So uh, I am very, very pleased to see that we are slowly but surely getting back to normal. I think that is great news. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 1-800-848-WABC. We are going to be joined in a few minutes by uh, Colonel uh, Douglas McGregor. Uh, Colonel McGregor is just a, uh, to me, he's a real patriot, a real intellect, and a real warrior, and somebody who is a straight shooter. He calls him as he sees him, and uh, I'm looking for, from what I remember, in December, he had predicted that Putin would not go west of the Dnipir River in Ukraine, and he would stay in the Donbass region. Now, from what it looks now... The Russian forces look to be trying to take over the whole country. So it looks like Colonel McGregor, at least with that prediction, got it wrong. 
So I'm going to ask him about that in uh, just a few minutes and what he thinks the role of the United States is at this point. We'll look forward to that conversation. And uh, if you want to comment on anything as well, 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-WABC. Uh, you want to find me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N L. And you can also email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I have gotten a ton of interesting email over the weekend, and I'm going to read your best and worst emails tomorrow. But let me give you one little minor spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> you know, I have a mischievous side to me. As anybody that knows me in real life will tell you. I have just a tremendous mischievous side. Nothing evil. I would never do anything evil or seriously hurt somebody. But there's just there's an aspect of my personality that loves mischief. So when I was filling in for Dominic Carter the other day, a woman writes to me. She took the time to write to me during the hour that I was filling in for Dominic. And she said, essentially, oh, if Dominic's out, then I'm out. And then she proceeded to list all of the reasons that she would not be listening to me. And clearly, she listens to enough of this show to know all the things that I'm doing wrong. She listens to this show to know, chapter and verse, all the things that I do that she doesn't like. And so she sends me an email to tell me how terrible I am and why she's not going to be listening. And she's sure no one else will listen to. So... What I've been doing, and you shouldn't do this, and I, I, I don't want to say I regret doing this, but this is not what I recommend to anybody. But what I've been doing is when listeners have been sending me complimentary emails, I've been forwarding them all to this woman. Now, why am I taking the time to do this? I mean, my day is packed, right? I don't have time to, you know, I, I don't have time to blow my nose, right? Why? And yet I still take the time to send all of these complimentary emails to this anonymous lady, this troll who I've never met and whose opinion counts for less than nothing just to irritate her. And that's the kind of person that you're dealing with here. That's the kind of person you're uh, listening to. Now, um, see, this is the thing here. Uh, th- so I called Jeffrey an Uber because he's kind enough to come in studio and, um, he, you know, I wanted to pay for an Uber home for him because it is 2 o'clock in the morning and he's close by. But um, now the Uber is calling. Now they stopped calling. I was gonna, I was wondering whether I should answer it on the air. I hope they don't leave because then I'll get charged the $5. So uh, hopefully, hopefully that gets straightened out. All right. Colonel Douglas McGregor joins me next. So if you want to email me, I will read your best and worst emails tomorrow in this hour. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. And you know what I did over the weekend? I reached out to all of the declared candidates for governor, Democrat, Republican, and Independent. I did each of them on this show. So uh, Andrew Giuliani, Rob Astorino, Lee Zeldin, Harry Wilson – uh, Kathy Hochul, Jamani Wilk- uh, Williams, Tom Swazi, and Larry Sharp. So I don't want to hear from anybody that I'm not making an effort to cover this governor's race fairly. Uh, all of the gubernatorial candidates have now been invited on this show. I am going to provide a forum for any of them to be on the show. I'm hoping that pretty soon WABC will do in the governor's race as we did in the mayor's race and the controller's race and the Manhattan DA's race and actually host a debate. 
moderated by someone like Dominic Carter or somebody like Rita Cosby, somebody who uh, would be a, a terrific debate moderator is Dominic Carter. But hopefully, and Rita's terrific as well, but we have a lot of people that would be great. So I'm hoping that we'll do that. But until then, I'm going to invite all the gubernatorial candidates on the show. Not surprisingly, the first one to accept my invitation has been Andrew Giuliani. He's going to be on this show tomorrow. So if you have any suggestions of questions, including tough questions for Andrew Giuliani, I'd be I'd love to hear them. I don't want to hear an ad hominem attack like, uh, oh, Andrew Giuliani, isn't it true that your father is just terrible and so are you? I mean, that's not a good question. But if you have substantive, challenging questions for him, send them over. We may even take calls uh, while he's on the air as well. But that's going to be tomorrow on the show as well. We have some other interesting things uh, popping for tomorrow as well. And obviously, we're keeping an eye on all this stuff happening in Ukraine. That is precisely what we're going to get into with Colonel Douglas McGregor. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC, one of the most listened to talk stations in the nation. The nation being the United States of America. Now, whenever I've tried to talk about foreign policy and analyze foreign policy and think about foreign policy, quite frankly, I've always tried to look at things through the lens of, and I'm sorry if this sounds xenophobic, I'm sorry if this sounds, uh, you know, insensitive, I'm sorry if this sounds unwoke, but I've tried to always look at foreign policy through the lens of what's best for America. So as we see these very troubling images out of Eastern Europe and we see these very brave people in Ukraine uh, fighting for their country, I'm left thinking, okay, well, I I mean, that's terrible. I I hope things get better. But what should America's role be in all of this? Someone who has provided uh, a lot of answers on this question and uh, somebody that has studied this issue for many, many years is not only a warrior, but he is a scholar, not only a Ph.D., but a decorated military veteran. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Colonel Douglas McGregor, retired U.S. Army colonel, former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense, author, and a senior fellow at the American Conservative Colonel. I know you're very much in demand these days. I appreciate you joining me. Oh, sure. Happy to do that, Frank. Uh, Colonel, we spoke, I think, back in December, the last time that we were on the radio together. And at that time, if I remember your analysis of the uh, Eastern European situation, you had indicated that you thought that Putin would go into um, eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region, but that you thought that he would stop uh, essentially at the Napier River and not go to the west. It seems like this invasion has indeed gone Uh, to all of Ukraine. Is that a fair characterization of how Putin has has used this invasion? No, absolutely not. Uh, He stayed east of the Dnieper River. Uh, Two-thirds of of Ukraine has not been attacked, and there is no evidence that he wants to attack it. He seized exactly what I thought he would, the Russian-speaking areas, and what you're seeing on television are images many of which are false, some of which are accurate, most of which are very misleading, suggesting that there is some great national uprising against the Russians in eastern Ukraine. There isn't. There are areas where there's resistance and lots of areas where there isn't any resistance. 
And he, as I said, has stayed behind that river. Uh, what he's done is he's appealed to Zelensky to essentially put down the arms and stop fighting. Uh, he hurriedly has surrounded concentrations of Ukrainian forces in towns and cities. Uh, the three largest cities are in Russian hands for all intents and purposes. Uh, Kiev is surrounded. He has not gone into it because he doesn't want to damage it. In fact, the, the entire approach that the Russian army has taken is to minimize property damage and to try and avoid killing as many people as possible. Mm. Uh, this is something people don't understand. They keep saying, well, where are all these massive assaults and blitzkrieg tactics? Well, that's not what you're going to see because he doesn't want to do it. So uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't realize that your prediction from December was right on the money, that he hasn't gone yeah, uh, to the yeah. West. Uh, and just in general, I want you to reiterate what you just said, if you would. And I'm sorry to interrupt to ask you to reiterate. But uh, again, I guess it's the host's prerogative at some, at some you know, occasionally. It, the media narrative, and it doesn't matter whether it's conservative networks like Fox, for the most part, with the notable exception of Tucker Carlson or uh, liberal networks like MSNBC and CNN. The media narrative has been that um, Putin is a, a Hitler-style madman uh, on par with some of the worst dictators in history, and he has this uh, bloodlust that uh, can only be satiated by going into all of Ukraine. You seem to uh, think Putin is behaving much than all that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Putin is not a Hitlerite figure at all. Uh, he's a, a Russian nationalist, a devout Orthodox Christian, and he reveres his country's history, uh, its culture, uh, its way of life. And he's set out to essentially prevent us from stationing on Ukrainian soil missiles and forces designed to hold a knife at the throat of Russia which is exactly what we've been up to now for the last 15 years, probably 20. Uh, he's not going to accept it, and he's told us that repeatedly. He suggested that we renounce any intention of bringing Ukraine into NATO. We refuse to do it, and people say, well, that was really never on the table. But it's been his experience that uh, whenever he has not asked for some sort of guarantee, he stood by and watched as more and more countries bordering the the Russian state have become members of NATO, and he doesn't want it to continue. And that's the first thing. The second thing is these areas that he's currently moved into are historically Russian. The U Ukraine, which means uh, on the edge, Ukraina, uh, is really the area beyond uh, the Dnieper River. And that area is the heartland of Ukraine. That's the, the breadbasket, uh, as we say, of Europe. That's the, the rich black earth. And he's not interested in going in there because he knows the population there is actually different and distinct and has a long history of being westernized, uh, either with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for 400 years or under Austrian or German or Swedish domination. Uh, so he understands his own region and his own country, but he wants it to be neutral. And I think what we're going to find is that when he gets into these discussions with Zelensky, he's going to offer to neutralize and leave independent uh, the territory that's west of the Dnieper River. I don't know what he's going to do with the east, whether he plans to stay there, make it part of Russia, set it up as an independent Russian republic 
called the Ukrainian Russian Republic or something of that nature. I have no idea. But he's certainly not going to turn it back over to an independent state that could conceivably invite foreign forces into it. If and if people, Justine, we're talking with Colonel Douglas McGregor, decorated, retired U.S. Army colonel, former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. He was also uh, President Trump's nominee to be ambassador to Germany, although uh, that uh, ambassadorship didn't ultimately come to fruition. Uh, is did Vladimir Putin need to go into uh, Ukraine once they had the guarantee from Biden and uh, and and other countries that they would not send troops? Troops to repel Russian forces. Uh, it would seem to it, it would it would seem to reason it would stand to reason that once America says we're not sending troops into Ukraine, that we wouldn't honor any Article Five treaty invocation if Ukraine were to be a part of NATO, and that would seem to alleviate some of Putin's stated concerns about NATO aggression on its border. Did he need to do this? Uh, he's not willing to bet on promises made by Biden or any other president. Uh, president George Bush Sr. made it abundantly clear. It was coda, it was uh, memorialized in, in documents uh, among the foreign ministers of Great Britain, the United States, and Germany, that and France, that uh, we, under no circumstances, would admit Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Hungary, Slovakia, or Romania to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We made it very clear that we would not exploit the vacuum that would be left once Soviet forces withdrew from those states, those countries. Uh, That was ignored, and Bill Clinton began the process of bringing in Poland, and then subsequently uh, his successors continued that process until all of those former Warsaw Pact countries became members of NATO. And then, of course, we pushed our forces into those areas, conducting military exercises within 50 nautical miles of Russian territory, St. Petersburg in the Baltic. We began moving into the Black Sea. Uh, As a result, he concluded, we've been lied to repeatedly for decades. They're now moving as close as they can. And that's why he went into Crimea in 2014 because it was clear to him that eventually Crimea would become a NATO naval base and he would have U.S. and allied warships docking there and using it as a platform. Remember, those places are within striking distance of many, many areas of strategic importance to Russia, across the Black Sea, to Iran, to the Caucasus, even into Central Asia. And as a result, he felt compelled to act. Uh, He thought that by seizing Crimea, he would send an unambiguous signal. Instead, we chose to attack him for effectively annexing something which Russia has controlled since 1776, as long as we've been a nation. And uh, having failed once again in his appeals to Biden and this administration, uh, he did talk to Trump and he felt confident that Trump understood his position But President Trump turned out to be unable to control the bureaucracy and uh, the Congress, which was hell-bent to be anti-Russian. And Mm. we know the story about the Russian hoax. As a result, we get Biden, and Biden immediately pours buckets of filth and abuse all over President Putin and the Russian state. So I think he concluded, I've got no choice. I'd better act because I'll wake up and find that once again, I've been lied to, and, and the forces will be on our borders, and we'll have essentially 
the equivalent of Pershing two missiles, which is a hypersonic missile, always was, uh, within a few minutes of reaching Moscow. And he didn't want to risk that. It, on Sunday, there was news that uh, President Putin has ordered his nuclear forces, Russia's nuclear forces, on alert. Uh, what exactly does that mean uh, for those of us that are laymen and may not have a military background? Does that bring us a little closer to a nuclear confrontation? Well, it's very clear to me that under no circumstances is President Putin going to initiate a nuclear strike. He's made that clear on numerous occasions. And I think the reason he's done this is to make it abundantly clear that if the United States should consider a strike against Russia, that they're prepared for it and will respond instantly. Uh, I think his great concern at this point is being attacked uh, by the United States and NATO, not with conventional forces, because he knows that the conventional ground forces are in poor condition. NATO alliance is is a military facade. Uh, we have sprinkled light troops uh, along his border, but they're incapable of mounting an offensive into Russia. But I think he is concerned about our potential willingness to use nuclear weapons. You've got to remember that you just had this uh, Senator Wicker from, I think it's Mississippi, who with a, another delegation, which was uh, overwhelmingly Democratic, except for, I think, Wicker and, and Senator Johnson, who uh, flew to Kiev and promised all sorts of support and assistance and said, we're here to show our solidarity. And of course, Wicker had made it clear that he thought that the United States should be ready to use nuclear weapons against Russia in order to keep uh, Putin and Russia out of Ukraine. So I think uh, this is this is his way of saying, if you're even seriously considering it, don't, Mm. because if you do, I'll respond what is the status and i know you have forces i know you have sources on uh, both sides of the russia ukrainian border i'm curious if you can tell us what the status of the war is now how bad is it in terms of casualties and how much territory do the russians actually control within what we know as territorial ukraine uh the eastern side of the dnieper river all those areas within the border of the current construct known as Ukraine, uh, those areas are under Russian control. <clears throat> what the Russians have done, and they've only used about 50% of the forces at their disposal right now, is that they have attacked and uh, forced Ukrainian forces that would not surrender into areas where they have been encircled. Uh, One of the largest of these is uh, in southeast Ukraine, north of Odessa, where about 40,000, some people think 50,000 Ukrainian troops have been surrounded. And they've done this at various uh, towns and cities because the Ukrainian forces understand they have no air defense. They have no air support. They have no mobility. They have no logistical infrastructure and limited ammunition. Putin gave strict instructions to the army that he's not interested in killing these people. He would prefer they lay down their arms and simply go home. Large numbers, by the way, have done that, though the U.S. media and British media are not reporting it. And he said if they'll lay down their arms and go home, we're finished with them. But if they will not surrender, then he will annihilate them. And he controls Kharkiv. He controls Odessa. He is surrounded Kiev. And as I said, the other concentrations in smaller towns, uh, they're standing by waiting for orders from Putin. And Putin has called Zelensky and said, look, 
we're not interested in killing these people. We need we need to put an end to this fighting. We need to meet. He's already already made it clear that he's willing to neutralize Western Ukraine, and that's two thirds of the country. He's he's sitting on one third of the country right now. And again, I don't know what the outcome will be, but I know that President Biden, and I think he's right on this, has told Zelensky, if you have the opportunity to uh, agree to neutrality, we will back you, and that's the right answer because. Right now, listening to people in Washington and other places, they're all willing to send arms. They won't send any troops. You know, if you're not willing to fight for something, then it's wrong to ask other human beings to sacrifice themselves in a fight they can't win. And right. that's what we're doing right now. Uh, yeah, I want to I want to come back to the issue of lethal aid in just a moment. And I appreciate you being uh, so uh, generous with your time this late at night. But um, we're, I mentioned you were President Trump's nominee to be the ambassador to Germany. We're seeing a bit of a shift from Germany in, in on foreign policy in general from them and specifically with Russia's Russia policy specifically. They're now sending heavy weaponry to Ukraine. They're going along with these uh, sanctions against Russia. They've indicated that they're going to up their spending to NATO to what's required of them, 2% of their GDP, which historically they've never met. Um, What do you attribute this to? Uh, Oh, and they're not going to uh, continue to buy energy from Russia through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. What do you attribute this change in tone from Germany to? Well, I think you have politicians in Western Europe who are very similar to the politicians we have, they tend to follow public opinion. They don't lead it. And I think that they're feeling pressure as a result of the kind of pictures and images and messages being sent by the media to the public. Uh, That's the first thing. Uh, And that's unfortunate because the German leadership knows better. Secondly, I think uh, he's decided to go with the flow. Uh, In other words, with everybody else in Europe, which is very dangerous, because without that natural gas access from Russia, uh, the Germans are going to be very badly hurt. They will have to turn almost entirely to the Middle East. And that's a very dangerous dependence, uh, dependency, far more in my estimation than any kind of dependency on Russia. People people need to understand Russia is not the Soviet Union. It doesn't have those kinds of forces at its disposal. Its economy is about the same as Spain's and smaller than that of South Korea that only has 49 million people. And it's not very diverse. It's very dependent on timber, metals, oil, gas, so forth. They don't build products that people want to buy. But they have a, a wonderful market through China and in the rest of Asia, I would argue, even though the Japanese may say publicly we'll support sanctions, uh, they're just going to buy the stuff from the Chinese that came out of Russia. The Germans uh, then are in a very difficult position. I don't think it will last. And I think the Germans will be badly hurt by this, and I predict that it will fall apart. The second thing is the financial sanctions aren't going to work because the SWIFT system is, is not going to be able to harm Russia the way it has harmed others. Russia has $689 billion in gold. Uh, if they do nothing, export nothing, produce nothing in two, for two years, they're still going to be in very good shape. Their debt-to-GDP ratio is about 18%, which is almost nothing. Our debt-to-GDP ratio is over 140 or some people think much higher percentage. 
same thing is true in Germany. Uh, we're having to service debt. We're dealing with enormous problems in our own countries. Europe has serious problems, just as we do. Russia is far more stable, frankly, than people realize. And they have become accustomed to living without access to us and to become almost autarkic. So I think uh, we're on the losing side in this process. We're not going to get the results that we want, but we will uh, succeed in cultivating a very serious enemy in Moscow that is armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons, has a very competent and capable uh, conventional force, when in fact we should be seeking better relations with them. And uh, at the same time, there's no support in the United States for committing U.S. forces to anything in Europe, in Eastern Europe period. And there's no support among the European public to fight the Russians over anything. So in the final analysis, the question is, why are we doing this when we don't want to fight for it? The Russians are willing to fight for what they believe in and for what they think is vital to their national strategic interest. We are not. It's so, not vital to us. It, it's so clear. What in the hell are we doing? Well, so it's very clear you're not in favor of sending American troops to Ukraine to repel this Russian invasion. Uh, you make a strong case for not upping or continuing sending lethal aid to Ukraine, which will not make the difference in a war with uh, the Ukrainians and uh, and the Russians. What should America do now? You've advised the Secretary of Defense before. If the current Secretary of Defense, the current Secretary of State, or the President were to ask your view of, given everything that's happened, all the mistakes that have been made by the United States, by Russia, by Ukraine, uh, with the situation as it is, what should the United States do going forward? Well, I think we should make it clear that our preeminent concern is to end this violence as soon as possible. And we offer support for any solution that preserves the Ukrainian state's prosperity and existence. And therefore, we will support President Zelensky, as President Biden has already said, if he is offered neutrality. We will end any further discussion of expanding NATO. We will recognize legitimate national security interest that Russia has. And I think that privately we should urge the people that border Russia to find a way to get along with their neighbors. One of the problems that we have with NATO, we've expanded this thing to 32 members. It's outrageous. I mean, you can't hold an alliance together in war with that. It's it's very difficult in peacetime. All of them have different interests. But under no circumstances do we want the tail to wag the dog. That is, we don't want to be hostage to the interests of little states that have an agenda that may be hostile to a neighboring state like Russia and be dragged into a conflict that we have no part in, no interest in. And so we, we really need to encourage people, first of all, to be their own first responders because we can't get there anymore quickly enough to effectively prevent a high end conventional force. Uh, from attacking them and defeating them. These are these are realities that, that are not going to change because we want them to. But I think the underlying point that, that I really think we need to understand is that these people who are fighting, and it's not everybody, as, as the media has shown in eastern Ukraine by a long shot, most people just want this thing to end. 
we're asking them to continue to die pointlessly. In fact, within the next 96 hours, thousands who could be annihilated because we keep telling them not to not to capitulate and not to negotiate an end to this when they cannot possibly win and will be destroyed. That that is not what we as Americans ought to be doing. If there is no uh, change in tone from the West, if there is no change in tone from Zelensky, although there was some uh, reports over the weekend that um, that there were some uh, there was some progress in terms of diplomatic talks between Zelensky and, and Putin. But you have written for uh, the national interest and a lot of other publications about what you thought Putin would do heretofore at this point. What do you think Putin does next? I think that Putin uh, wants to avoid any conflict with NATO. He's not interested in invading anybody. Uh, He's interested in securing the Russian people and the Russian state from any potential danger that in his mind NATO represents to them. But that does not uh, require him to invade Lithuania, Latvia or Estonia. He has no interest in that. Uh, has no interest in challenging Poland or Romania. He would like to have good relations and do business with these people. But he is not going to allow Ukraine to become a forward operating base for NATO and people, frankly, in the United States government that are interested in regime change in Russia. You have to understand that they went through this regime change experience uh, first in Kiev, in which we played a very prominent role. We then tried it recently in in Belarusia. It failed, and the president of Belarusia appealed to Putin for help, and Putin said, I'm not going to allow Belarusia to become another Ukraine. So now you have Russian forces in Belarusia where there were none previously, and I'm quite certain that some Russian forces will stay there permanently as a result. Then you have the problem in Ukraine, and Ukraine is is a, a long-standing invasion approach into Russia. There are two approaches, one to the north on one side of the Pripet marshes and one on the south. And he's not going to allow either of these invasion routes to be occupied by potential enemies. And no matter what we say publicly, the truth is that we have been extremely hostile to Russia over the last 20 years. And we have done many things to them to humiliate them, to undermine them and erode their sense of self-respect and to hurt their economy. We've already got sections imposed on him that make absolutely no sense over this Crimea business. We're treating this construct for Ukraine that, that was pulled out of the air in the 1950s and some, somewhat earlier by the communists whose entire mythology or methodology was to pit people against each other inside the old Soviet empire pit them against each other in such a way that they would never threaten the center or Moscow. And that included creating this Ukrainian construct that we have today. He knows this. He's not going to tolerate it. And he's put an end to it. Now, the question is, he wants an end to the fighting. He doesn't want to kill any more people. He certainly doesn't want to destroy anything. I mean, it was interesting to me that yesterday there was this claim that the Russians had attacked these uh, oil containment facilities and blowing everything up. Well, it's nonsense. The Ukrainians did that. This is the sort of crap that comes through our media. No one questions anything. And so you get lie upon lie upon lie. 
they were talking about the heroic stand of a Ukrainian battalion on Snake Island near the Romanian border, just not far from Odessa, saying they fought to the last man because they hate Russians. Well, that's not nonsense. Very few were killed, and they're all sitting in a POW camp in Crimea. Well, this kind of thing has been going on and on. There are plenty of places where the Russians have been welcomed by people, where they haven't had a shot fired at them. We don't talk about that. The situation is very different from what it's depicted by the United States media. Well, it's so we interesting don't want to be in this. Th- there are so there are a few people that are willing to question the conventional media narrative. I'd put myself in that category of of uh, how th- of how this has unfolded. Now, whether it's me, whether it's much more prominent people uh, like you, like Tulsi Gabbard, uh, people on the right like Pat Buchanan, people on the left like Katrina Vanden Heuvel and, Gren- and uh, Glenn Greenden. Uh, Glenn Greenwald or, or uh, the, you know, DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. Immediately, if you deviate one centimeter from whatever the the conventional wisdom is on this issue, you're labeled as a Russian stooge, a useful idiot or somebody that is spouting Kremlin propaganda. I'm not sure how I I, I'm not sure I understand how that sort of uh, shouting down and bullying anybody that has a differing view is conducive to effective foreign policy discussion. Oh, well, it's also uh, very damaging to policy development and implementation. It's not very democratic. Uh, when FDR was president in the 30s and throughout the Second World War, many, many prominent people, uh, George Kennan is well known, but there are several others, Ambassador Bullock, who went to Moscow, uh, several spoke out. And said, look, Stalin is the enemy of Western civilization. There is no interest that binds us to the Soviet Union. Many were very blunt, saying, if anything, he represents a far greater danger to the West than Hitler. We have no interest in rescuing the Soviet Union or involving ourselves in any way to support them. Anyone who spoke out against communism and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union that murdered millions long before the Second World War began and maintained concentration camps in great numbers long before there was a single one anywhere in Germany or Eastern Europe. They were fired. FDR got rid of them. Now we have the same thing in reverse. Those of us who are saying, no, this is not the Soviet Union. This is not what it appears to be. Your interpretation is wrong. And we are cultivating conflict and hostility where it doesn't have to exist, where instead we should be an honest broker trying to help find solutions and stop pretending that Moscow and Putin is Stalin and the Soviet Union. And we are all being attacked. It's a very strange set of circumstances, mm. but it, in a way, it's history repeating itself, although in a different way. So, uh, Sunday evening, you were on Fox News with uh, Trey Gowdy, and they had a reporter, Jennifer Griffin, on right afterwards. And she essentially said that uh, the kind of uh, – this is her characterization, not mine – the kind of appeasement talk that you are uh, – that you were talking with Trey Gowdy about – uh, is exactly what made Vladimir Putin think he could move into a sovereign country like Ukraine.
Ukraine. I feel like I need to correct some of the things that Colonel Doug McGregor just said because, and I'm not sure 10 minutes is enough time to do so because there were so many distortions in what he just said and talking about the West and NATO vilifying Putin and sounding like an apologist for Putin and talking about how Putin, he thinks he knows how far Putin wants to go. I don't think anyone that I've spoken to uh, here at the Pentagon or elsewhere in uh, Western intelligence believes they know how far Putin wants to go. And I think that the world has seen what Putin is capable of. And to blame uh, NATO membership for what we've seen Putin unleash, we've seen from Putin's own words that he is talking in czarist terms from a 18th, a 19th century view of uh, empirical, Im imperial Russia. So those, uh, what he just said was so distorted that I do feel that our audience needs to know the truth. In terms of Putin, I've known uh, and seen uh, Vladimir Putin operate since 1999 when I was based in Moscow for Fox. It's where I started my career with Fox. And Vladimir Putin is a former KGB agent. He's been laying the groundwork for this, and he's been, uh, whether it was invading Georgia in 2008. We've talked about the invasion in 2014. The kind of appeasement talk that Colonel Doug McGregor, who should know better, because when he was in government, he was the one who was advising uh, President Trump to pull all U.S. troops out of Germany. That kind of uh, projection of withdrawal and weakness is what made Putin think that he could actually move into a sovereign country like Ukraine. What do you make of uh, Jennifer Griffin's criticism? Well, the opposite is the case. It was our unwillingness to listen to anything that Putin said, to consider his case for an alternative to Ukraine, Ukrainian membership in NATO. That's what led to this. It has nothing to do with appeasement. But Jennifer Griffin is, frankly, a neocon. She's a well-known neocon who's a strong advocate for interventions by the United States everywhere, in the Middle East or Asia or Europe or anywhere else. Uh, and her characterization is the standard neocon narrative. Everybody the neocons want to attack is instantly Hitler. And we're back in the 1930s on our way to Munich to sign away uh, Czechoslovakia or something in 1938. This is a tired trope, a tired uh, mantra. It has nothing to do with what's happening today or the events and the people that are involved. But this is a the standard playbook that uh, the neocons have used. And the neocons are almost entirely now identified with the left, but we still have a lot on the right. And we have a lot of misguided people that see some political advantage to standing up and signing on for this uh, mythology and fiction about Putin and Ukraine. Finally, uh, and we have no interest there. I mean, this is the key thing. We have no interest there. Well, the only interest we have there and have ever had there is to forestall a war, to prevent uh, this from happening. We could have done that. We refused to do so. Finally, sir, a lot of listeners are concerned that this will lead to China going into Taiwan. Seeing the Biden reaction and the handling of this crisis will embolden Xi to go into Taiwan. One, do you think that's likely? And if China does go into Taiwan, what if what response, if any, should America have to that? Well, first of all, no, I I don't subscribe to that. Xi has no interest in any conflict anywhere. In fact, Xi has been extremely concerned about what Putin has done, not because he disagrees with him. He understands the logic and the rationale for it, and he sympathizes with him. 
But remember that Xi is trying to build this enormous network called the One Belt, One Road across Central Asia through Russia and Ukraine into Europe. He's trying to build an alternative commercial transportation route because, quite frankly, uh, he's afraid that we'll blockade China at some point from the sea. And he desperately needs to have that overland commerce in order to supply and sustain China's economy. So I don't see much evidence that he would do that. Frankly, the Chinese Navy is not very good. Uh, moving all of those forces 90 miles across water to try and reach Taiwan is an enormous endeavor. Don't see any evidence that they're doing that or want to do it. And then finally, uh, Taiwan has become the, the high-end producer of, of microcircuitry in the world, something that we used to do before we exported it overseas. And Japan and China and the United States all depend very heavily on it. No one wants to destroy it, the Chinese least of all. So I don't see much evidence for that. In fact, there are two parties on Taiwan. One is pro-Tokyo. The other is pro-Beijing. They're both neck and neck. And the pro-Beijing party is the old Chiang Kai-shek party that advocates for reunification with China. So I think that that whole thing is a mirage. And uh, I don't know why people keep saying it, except that it's, it's pushed through the media by some of the same people like Jennifer Griffin and others who seem to be in the hunt for another war and another enemy at a point in time when, frankly, we don't have to do that. China is many things, but a military enemy is not one of them. Colonel, uh, it is always enlightening to talk with you. It is uh, a real pleasure to talk with you, especially when there's so many significant events unfolding around the world. And if we're both sent to an anti-Russian re-education camp, <laughs> I hope we get to be cellmates, sir. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's hope we we don't do that. But there are clearly some people that probably would like to set those up. Right? I, I don't doubt it. Colonel Douglas McGregor, retired U.S. Army Army Colonel, former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense, author, senior fellow at the American Conservative, and President Trump's nominee to be ambassador to Germany. If you want to comment on any portion of your of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. One eight hundred eight four eight WABC. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano, straight ahead. This is a, a terrific artist uh, named uh, Natalie Blue. Uh, this song is called You Make Loving Easy, and uh, it's available on YouTube. It's available on iTunes. Natalie Blue is actually married to my brother-in-law, David. So that makes her my wife's sister-in-law, and technically it makes her absolutely nothing to me, to paraphrase uh, the movie Baseball. 
Um, there's no word in English for your for your wife's sister-in-law. No word. There are other languages. I remember John Katzmanzidi said in Greek, there's some word to describe your uh, spouse's brother or sister-in-law. But in English, we don't have a word like that. I've always felt that we could use a word like that. Because how, I mean, that sounds so impersonal, my wife's sister-in-law. But this is a great song. Uh, Natalie Blue is the artist, uh, You Make Loving Easy. She's going to be a very big star one day. So if you want to um, help her out, you can pay, I think, a dollar to download this song on iTunes. Or just, you could still listen to it for free on the YouTube. It's uh, a great song. It's funny, when I got married, when Rachel and I got married, this was on our playlist to play at the wedding. And they started playing it. And my cousin Andrea, uh, you know, was standing next to my wife and me on the dance floor. And uh, she said, oh, this is such a great song. And Rachel pointed to her sister-in-law, Natalie, and said, yeah, that, that's her. That's whose song this is. And she said, well, you know, because she could tell Natalie was kind of dancing to it and kind of mouthing the words. She said, well, why isn't she singing? And she grabs the microphone from the DJ and gives it to Natalie and just brought down the house. So then they live in California. But when they stayed with us recently... Uh, my Uncle Steve remembered this, and he downloaded the song. He was so taken with her performance by it. And he happened to come over one day, and he sees uh, that they're there and makes her basically do an impromptu concert in our living room. I guess that was the cost of room and board for a, uh, a few days. All right. Uh, if you want to find me on social media, you can do so. Uh, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. We also have a vibrant Facebook group at Morano Radio Fans and Haters. A couple of people, one woman says, oh, I have all these posts declined for not being topical, not being relevant. How come other people get non-relevant uh, posts approved? Well, let me explain how that works. So the way it works is sometimes people trick me is if people keep making posts in the Facebook group that are relevant to the show, whether it's criticism or praise or just thoughts or questions, if they make five, six, seven, eight posts in a row that are all relevant to the show, and I keep hitting approve, 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 then usually I'll just pre-approve them so that they can post whenever they want. But if I pre-approve them, then they can post non-relevant subject matter. So I get lulled into a false sense of security, and then people start commenting, and I feel bad deleting it. So that's how that happens. All right. A lot of people – oh, so I'm on Instagram at Morano Vision, M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. My wife remarked to me over the weekend how taken she is with the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, former comedian and uh, actor who became president, first time ever running for office. And she said how handsome he was. And she was uh, – both of her sisters, I think all, three of her sisters, all agreed with her. We were with all, all of them on Saturday on, on Long Island. And it just so happens – now, I didn't mention that on the air. But it just so happens that another listener emailed me a photo, a side-by-side photo of me from my wedding when Rachel and I got married two and a half years ago, three years ago maybe, uh, close to three years ago. And Vladimir Zelensky. And in this picture, the, I don't think we look alike at all. But in this side-by-side comparison, we, I guess there's a similarity in our hairstyle and our look. So if you want to see side-by-side uh, Vladimir Zelensky and me, you can go to my Instagram, Morano Vision, M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. 
And uh, I've never thought we look alike. And certainly my wife did not think we looked alike. And then I, I figured I was I, I thought I should be kind of offended by that because she said, oh, yeah, Vladimir Zelensky so handsome. The two of you look nothing alike. So that's kind of where we are. But you can take a look at our photos side by side uh, at Morano Vision. I didn't write the words separated at birth. This listener that forwarded me this photo did. So it's not me saying that. That's this listener. You make your own judgments. Um, let me squeeze. Okay. Uh, a lot of people want to comment on the Doug McGregor interview. I will get to all of you. Uh, Bill is in Oakland. Bill, we got less than a minute here. It's all yours. Yes. I was just wondering if we deal with so many uh, nefarious countries out there, The obviously the Cold War ended, the Soviet Union broke up. How come we don't let Russia play in the global economy? Bill, I think that's a, a great a great call. Thank you. I completely agree with you. I mean, the reason we don't is, a, is punishment from the international community as a result of Russia's annexation of Crimea. Now, I uh, have never subscribed to that, cutting off countries, whether it's uh, rogue actors like North Korea, Iran, or uh, countries like Russia that uh, that do sorts of things. I think the way to get countries to act more civilized is to make them more a part of the international community, not less. I've never found sanctions to be effective, uh, whether we're talking Russia, Iran, North Korea, or any of these other countries. Others, I guess, can disagree. Those of you that are holding and want to comment, I will we'll get to you. we got commendations coming up and a whole lot more. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Until next hour, keep asking questions. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. What was that that we just heard there, uh, Matt Blaze? What was that English speaking, the English accented guy speaking over my uh, beautifully timed intro here? That would be um, Frank Diaz. No, no, cutting that, the news. Oh, that's, that's Frank Diaz cutting the yes. news. He's, yeah, so he's cutting the news. He's cutting the news. And why was he cutting it? You know, in the midst of our program while being <laughs> live on. So on, what know. happens is because there are times that. The faders are different. So when I don't put the fader down, because I'm not used to doing that, and this time I needed to. Why are you not used to doing it? Because the news at the top of the hour is usually on tape? Some, yes, sometimes it is. I see. So when it is, I just let it just plays and ends. I see. So if I don't bring it down, Diaz's is, uh, desk, whatever he's playing, his computer comes through. I see. Do so we have any similar explanation for why Jeffrey Gurian's microphone was not The same on? one. That's the same one. The same exact the same, same thing. Well, because you turn your mic on and off. And and you assume that everybody that do, that comes in here does the same thing. Correct. Until until it doesn't happen. Until it doesn't and happen. And then I go, oh, I got to turn it on and right. off. The same thing happened with Bob Wolf the other day. Yes. I guess, though, I mean, Bob Wolf, I think, was here on Thursday, and that's now Monday. I mean, the fact that that's happened so close to one another, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's that much of a rarity, you know. <laughs> Well, it happens because, like I said, you turn your mic on and off. I see. So now I have to remember when there's a guest in here that I have to turn their mic on. Also, other people sit in that chair as well that do turn their mic on and off. So it's the guest's so it's, fault. It's not the guest's fault. I'm just saying it's it's Well, really, it's Molly's I fault. I guess she should to. instruct the guest, turn your mic on and off so that no, we don't No, we don't do want the guest, guest to do that. No. Okay. I'd say I figured it's a union I thing. will take the entire. All right. 
But Wait. by the way, you mentioned uh, Frank Diaz trying to uh, cut in on our on our program there. Um, so I heard his uh, news at the top of the hour. It, to me, it sounds like he's got a cold or something. I was going to I was going to invite him in to uh, to address whether he's got a cold or something. But then I, I I thought to myself, one, if he has a cold, I want him as far away from me as possible. And then I remembered the last time he did come in here sick. It turned out he had COVID and infected That's half true. the office. That is true. No, I don't want him anywhere near you. And he just motioned to me outside the door. I could turn his mic he on. He gave me the, the – oh, you can. Yes, turn now, it on if you can. Now his I, mic is I, on. I'm a little congested. I don't have a cold, though. This always happens Sunday into Monday after uh, a long uh, Saturday of uh, indulging. I see. So this is this is like post-drunkenness. This is not – Yeah, I mean and from Saturday maybe. <laughs> So, uh, so, I'm doing a little research right now. Into Frank Diaz's medical condition? Yeah, I think it's actually called a hangover. Ah, uh, I see. Are you hungover? No. Is that the, I no, was, I was yesterday afternoon, but no, not right now. Oh, really. it's see, over now. Yeah. You guys don't know how to drink, uh, honestly. I don't. I don't. You, you don't. I, 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 I really don't. You give me, I'm almost 30 years old, and I, I don't even know how to do it. You, you give me a week with you people, and uh, you know I'll whip you guys into shape. Okay, fair enough. You know how many times I've been hungover? Zero. Zero. Really? Because you guys don't know how to drink. Yeah, I don't know about you, Matt, because I don't, I don't hear stuff. you complaining about uh, hangovers. Support. I've been hungover in 20 years. Yeah, so least. all right. So I maybe, mean, maybe personally, you know I think the wallowing is part of the fun. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. It was that. It was the. No, no. <laughs> it's Frank cutting Dave again. <laughs> yeah. All right. Back on to. Yeah, again, he's trying to screw us <laughs> yeah, again. See? Yeah. And then his mic was on. He knew his mic was on. That he time. knew his mic was on, and he in- instead chose to still play audio. I turn my so mic far. off. Okay. There you go. Now he's on. All right. So you you think that Frank just sounded bored? You don't think he sounded sick? No. Yeah, bored. Bored. Bored to tears. Interesting. All right. Uh, hey. There's no accounting for taste, I guess. All right. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. I love the kind of comments we get on Twitter. This one fella finds me on Twitter and says the following about the uh, interview with Colonel McGregor. And I know a bunch of you want to comment on that. I'm going to take your calls in just a minute, and we got commendations coming up shortly. This one fella writes, very interesting interview. Glad I stayed up to listen. Now, you think that's a good thing, right? You think it's a good, it's a good tweet that's coming, right? Now, that's when you're, you're wrong, right? But you, you get lulled into a false sense of security. This is the whole tweet. Very interesting interview. Glad I stayed up to listen. Haven't been a huge fan of Frank's show, but so far, both interviews have been very entertaining and informative. Well done, Frank. All right. You, you notice he had to make sure people knew he wasn't a huge fan of Frank's show. He couldn't just leave it as, oh, very good interview, Frank, or, or I learned something, or uh, I didn't learn something, or I really was wowed by both guests. Yeah. He had to make sure to say... Haven't been a huge fan of Frank's show. Just so, lest anyone accuse him of being a huge fan of Frank's show. Let it be known, I want this very public, the Twitter user NoBox2020 is not, has never been a huge fan of Frank's show. So I want, his, his reputation is secure, unlike the rest of you. Commendations coming up in a minute, but a bunch of folks have been patiently holding. John is in Florida. Hello, John. Hey, how you doing? Listen, that last question you asked about Taiwan, his answer makes no sense because China went into Hong Kong and has taken away freedom there. And President Xi has come out and said he wants to reunify Taiwan. So how do you square that last answer? 
Well, I mean, that's the reason I asked the question. I, I mean, I, and some of the other leaked documents that we've seen out of China would seem to indicate that uh, they have an interest in uh, in going after Taiwan. So, look, I don't pretend to have uh, Colonel McGregor's expertise, which is why I'm in the business of asking questions, not answering them. Uh, Colonel McGregor, and thanks for the call, John, he led the most consequential armored fight since World War II. Back in 1991, he led an armored cavalry squadron in Germany to, um, I mean, no, excuse me, in the Gulf War in 1991. And then after that, he led an armored cavalry squadron in Germany to remarkable training success a few years later. There is no one, I want to emphasize, no one who knows the realities of combat better than he does. And he happens to be a Ph.D. on top of that. So the guy knows what war is like. And um, he's somebody who I find to be a very intelligent man. So I can't explain the whole Taiwan situation, and I can't explain his view of it. But that's why I asked the questions. Ray is in the Bronx. Hello, Ray. Hello. How are you? Uh, Can you hear me? Yeah. uh, uh, Jeanine Pirro, Arab criminal uh, justice for Timothy McVeigh or whatever. Right, Ray? Excuse me. No, I'm Ray. Uh, I, I, I want I want to talk talk about was uh, your recent interview with the colonel. It was excellent. Oh, thank you. So you're not the Irishman from the Bronx? No. Oh, all right. Okay. Well, uh, I Actually, apologize. Mom, mom, mom's Irish. Ah, uh, well, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I, I live in I live in Riverdale. I live about a block away from the Russian mission, so I know a few things about what's going. Well, on. Well, that's interesting, Ray. You know, I've found people from Riverdale. They usually don't refer to where they live as the Bronx, even though it is. They usually refer to it as Riverdale. Yet you called in and identified yourself as being from the Bronx rather than Riverdale. Well, I grew up with Parkchester. I live in Riverdale now. My wife kind of moved. I see. All right, right. We're getting to the bottom of this. We, 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 they do say Riverdale. They do say Riverdale. They do indeed. They do indeed. And that's why that's why I was surprised you didn't call in and say I'm Ray from Riverdale. There's certain a there's certain pride that comes with, no, with Riverdale. Know, like I said, I, I grew up in Parkchester. Uh, but anyway. Anyway, uh I I do know a little situation in Ukraine. It's um and what I'm really what I really wanted to say is uh, I spent three years in Yugoslavia uh, after the civil war and I have to reaffirm what the colonel was saying that what we're getting here on this side of the Atlantic, especially from our media is exactly 180 degrees different from what's really going on over there. You know, and, uh, as I, as I mentioned, when I was in Yugoslavia, when first time I went there, I went to Bosnia, I went to a town called Bursko and I was told that the Serbians over there, these are the nasty people. These are the people who hate you and they're not going to do what you ask. And I found out it was exactly the opposite. These and, are the, probably the best people over there. That was in Boston. Uh, a couple of years later, I ended up in Kosovo, the town of Mitrovica. Again, another very, uh, it, was, it was a very contested area. We ran along the Iber River. One side was uh, Serbian, one side was uh, Albanian. Again, Serbian for the best people over there. I don't know, you wouldn't know that from turning the TV on and watching the news. And my third time, I was in the capital, Pristina, when they when they uh, gained their independence, and, and everything went crazy. But to make a long story short, I have to say what we what we learned here in the United States and watch on those. You just gotta 
you only get one side of it, one side of the story. You're not getting the other. Well, uh, I appreciate that, uh, Ray. Thanks for the call. And it's funny. Um, on this show, I do try to find the people, whether we're talking uh, assassination conspiracies, whether we're talking politics, whether we're talking foreign affairs, whether we're talking aliens. Uh, I, I try to find the people that you don't hear in conventional media platforms. I try to find some of the views that I'm always that's I've always been intrigued by the stuff that the establishment doesn't want you to hear. Right. And why don't they want you to hear it? If their views are so outlandish, what's the harm in giving voice to them? You know, it's funny. One of the people that definitely fit that description is Tulsi Gabbard. And you know of my fondness for the former Democratic congresswoman from Hawaii. She spoke over the weekend at CPAC. I was amazed at the vitriol with which Tulsi Gabbard's tweets have been greeted. People who you would know, who I'm not going to give a, a platform, not going to give like a, a free commercial to, people who you would know have been saying the most vile things in response to Tulsi Gabbard's view of the Russia, uh, Russia-Ukraine Russia situation. One person saying something to the effect of, now this is a military veteran, a combat veteran who's still in the reserves, an officer. She's a military officer, swear has sworn multiple times to uphold the Constitution of the United States, and she has risked her life for America's freedom. I'd be curious how many of these uh, these Twitter critics of hers have done the same. One person I saw said th- something to the effect of, burn your uniform, you effing traitor. Traitor! Traitor! Because she disagrees. So she was at CPAC uh, over the weekend. Donald Trump also spoke at CPAC Saturday night, sounding very much like a Trump, I mean, not Tulsi, sounding very much like he's running again in 2024. But Tulsi spoke, I believe this was either Friday or Saturday, whichever day it was, this weekend. And she was talking about how a lot of people on both sides of the aisle don't necessarily want her at CPAC. You know, I kind of started to see coming from the so-called progressives the usual things coming out saying, Tulsi Gabbard is going to CPAC. She's a traitor. Hillary was right. Get her out of here. And then I started to see the things coming up from so-called conservatives, mostly directed at Matt, saying, how dare you? (laughs) Don't you know she's a Democrat? Cancel her. Disinvite her. Lock the doors. Don't let her in. While these things can be easy to laugh about sometimes, unfortunately, this kind of reaction, this kind of tribalism is not limited to social media. It is something that's happening far too often and far too common across our country, where one section of our country sticks to our own tribe. We only hang out with and listen to and talk to people who we agree with. And we turn our backs and reject anyone who is not part of that tribe. But this kind of tribalism is dangerous and it's emblematic of an erosion of a spiritual foundation in this country. It's emblematic of this lack of recognition that we are all God's children. That we are one nation under God. And knowing that inspires us... It inspires us to look within and find that fundamental respect 
and care that we should have for one another. I absolutely love this woman. This woman is a real leader, and she's not just a political leader and a, and a leader of a, a political movement. She She's a thought leader. And the way she approaches issues, and not just political issues, but sociological ones, that is one of the things that I find sorely missing, not just in the media, but in terms of life. This what she referenced there, tribalism and how we retreat to our own corners. We're conservative and we only surround ourselves with conservatives. We're liberal. We only surround ourselves with liberal. It's so incredibly dangerous. And that's one of the reasons if you're not listening to the Cats at Night show weeknights at 5 p.m., you've got to listen to it because that's the only show really on a daily basis other than this one where, well, even more so than this one. You have top newsmakers of varying political ideologies all sitting in the same room, all talking to one another, and all hashing out the the issues of the day. So you see a, like a Democratic governor talking with a Republican governor, a Democratic senator talking with a Republican senator, the all, and even beyond politics. I love the mixing and matching of the different you know ideologies that they do there, and that's what Tulsi's talking about. Uh, that's so important, and it's something that I think we've gotten away from as a society, and I think that's a real shame. And I give her a lot of credit for being willing to speak to a conservative group like CPAC. And you know what my attitude would be? If I was invited anywhere, I don't care if I'm invited to speak to the Democratic Socialists of America or the John Birch Society or anyone in between. I would be pleased to accept an invitation from anybody and and speak to, well, I wouldn't because I'm not looking for more invitations because I'm kind of busy as it is. But if I was in the business of speaking in live events and if my schedule was a little more forgiving, I would accept speaking invitations everywhere. Because, I mean, I think if you're invited by a group that primarily consists of folks that you don't agree with, I think that's a wonderful thing. This is a woman who was the vice chairman of the Democratic National Committee. This is a woman who is a, as progressive as can be. Favors universal health care. She endorsed Bernie Sanders in 2016, endorsed Joe Biden over Donald Trump in 2020, and they still had her at CPAC. And the fact that she accepted says a lot about her. The fact that CPAC invited her says a lot about CPAC. Uh, I have a newfound respect for Matt Schlapp and the American Conservative Union, honestly, or I think that's the group that he's with that runs CPAC. I've never thought much of CPAC previously, I have to be honest. Uh, They have elevated themselves significantly in my eyes. In fact, they just might get a commendation. We're going to get to commendations in just a minute. Uh, But I'm so now hooked on Tulsi. I want to hear what she said about how the elites in our society undermine our rights and freedoms. We have too many Americans, including leaders in positions of great power in our country, who are not at all committed to upholding the Constitution. We have many Americans who don't even know what the Bill of Rights are. They think free speech is something that should only be left to those who agree with them, saying, hey, if you know what, if your speech offends me or if it offends anyone, then you should not be allowed to say it. This is where we are as a country. We have too many people in positions of power whose foremost responsibility is to protect our freedoms and uphold our God-given rights And yet they are the ones who are actually trying to take these rights away from us. This 
is the biggest threat to our country. It is not coming from some foreign country. It is coming from power elite here at home and their co-conspirators in the mainstream media and the security state who are working to undermine our freedoms from within. I love this one. Honestly, I had been a little iffy about her, even though I lo- I've always loved everything she said. Even when I disagree, end up disagreeing with her, I end up loving what she said. I loved her in those debates with Kamala Harris when they were running for president. I, the one thing that always gave me pause about her is that she had had a, a, a she'd fooled around with another congressman who I find pretty reprehensible. And I said, all right, anybody that would mess around with that guy and have any sort of a relationship with that guy. I'm not sure how much I trust. But look, how many of us have made mistakes in previous relationships? I've decided I'm over it and I'm not holding that against her anymore. And uh, I think that uh, she's the bee's knees, as it were. We'll do commendations shortly, but uh, let me, those of you that were kind enough to hold, let me give you an opportunity to be heard. John is in Bayonne. Hello, John. Hi, Frank. Uh, the interview and then something on Tulsi Gabbard. Great interview. I learned a lot. Thank from that you. Interview. Thank I you never heard much. of this guy. And I, I, it's changed my perspective on almost everything that happened in the last few days. And now it makes sense why Jennifer Griffin, this most anti-Trump uh, person on Fox, would go against him. He was in the administration of Trump, and he makes a lot of sense. And in the end... Trump's going to be proven right on almost everything he's said and done in the end. That's how I feel about that. And this guy made a lot of sense. Great interview. Well, why doesn't you. Tulsi Gabbard, why can't she endorse Trump in any way? She speaks a lot like him sometimes. Why would she endorse Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden? Well, well I mean, she's I a progressive. She's it. a progressive. You know, I mean, I, you know, I think, uh, I mean, she's for things like single payer health care and things like that. So that's not really in keeping with where where Trump is on the issues these days. But I mean, can't she just be neutral? Well, you know, again, John, I, I don't know Tulsi Gabbard. I've never spoken to Tulsi Gabbard. So I've, I've tried to get her on the show a couple of times. Uh, I will be happy to pose that question to her when uh, when she does come on the show. Where do you see her in the future, Frank? That's a good I'll, question. I'll, I'll you know, um, thank you. I would love to see her run for president in 2024 as a third party candidate. But I think uh, she probably sees herself as a senator from Hawaii. That's what I would assume. Uh, but who knows? Again, I've never spoken with uh, Tulsi Gabbard ever. I've tried to several times. And uh, for whatever reason, whenever I've tried to get her on the show, she has uh, she's been unavailable. But um, but I think that um, she probably sees herself, like I said, as a uh, as a senator from from Hawaii. But uh, I can't speak for her. The, the next election for senator is in 2024. Uh, Maisie Hirono is uh, the senator now. I don't know if she would primary Maisie Hirono or, you know, what the nature of their relationship is. But I'd say the U.S. Senate would be a lot better off with uh, somebody like Tulsi Gabbard in it. Uh, Michael's in Virginia Beach. Hello, Michael. Uh, hi, and uh, thank you so much for having the colonel on. Uh, he brings a perspective that uh, your good friend and mine uh, helped make public in 2017. I'm talking about uh, Tony Lyons, uh, the head of uh, Skyhorse Publishing, who published the uh, four interviews 
that uh, Oliver Stone did with uh, Vladimir Putin uh, between July of 2015 and February of 2017. So when he finished those four uh, interviews, which lasted uh, nine days, uh, over a period of nine days, when he finished that last interview, it was less than a month after uh, Donald Trump had taken office as president in 2017. And uh, the interesting thing, I think, was the most penetrating question that a, a, a very sensitive uh, Oliver Stone uh, uh, made towards Putin at that time, uh, less than a month after uh, Trump took office. Uh, well, actually, there were two penetrating questions. One was, uh, since Putin had, uh, by that time, uh, been uh, the head of, uh, uh, of Russia for uh, uh, 17 or 18 years, uh, had his holding power that long uh, distorted uh, his, his judgment in uh, seeking to be uh, a more democratic nation. That was uh, the, the mm -hmm. one question. And the second question, which I think was... Uh, Mike, I, I got uh, to move on here. Pre I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for the call and thank you for the nice words. A uh, big fan of Tony Lyons, and I actually met Oliver Stone at uh, Tony Lyons' house. And uh, Tony Lyons has been a guest on this show. The, the, you know, he's uh, published Woody Allen's book. He published Alan Dershowitz's book. Uh, he published, you know, so Dershowitz wrote a book, The Case for Vaccine Mandates. He published that. And he also published Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book, which is very critical of vaccines and vaccine mandates. So um, I love a guy that embraces free speech. And uh, that's what I try to do on this show. Like I was saying on Facebook, somebody posted, um, you know, somebody commented, oh, well, I don't agree with Douglas McGregor, so I'm not going to listen to him. And I thought to myself, that is so incredibly short-sighted. It reminds me of when you're a kid and you're in an argument with somebody and you put your hands in your ears and you go, nah, 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 and you don't want to hear what the other person is saying. And I find that so incredibly dangerous, honestly. And, I, and I'm not overstating this, I don't think. I find it dangerous when you steal yourself in a bubble to protect yourself from opinions that you might not agree with. You should be looking for opinions that you might not agree with. Um, and look, I, I like on the Russia issue, for instance, I would say, well, I'm going to try and have some pr real Russia hawks on on the show. But then, you know, I realize all of the media, except for the media outlets that I've mentioned, all of the media is Russia hawks now. Republican, you know, conservative networks, liberal networks, it, they're all Russia hawks. I mean, there's a prevailing wisdom, and again, I, I'm not going to repeat all of Friday's show, but there's a prevailing wisdom on the left and on the right that Putin is a Hitler-esque madman. And so I, I almost feel like my little corner of the world, these four hours that I'm gifted on this radio show, that I have an obligation to offer you a differing perspective. And it's up to you if you want to agree with it, disagree with it. I'm offering these experts, these opinions, uh, this information, and it's up to you whether or not you want to buy into it or not. And if you don't, don't. That's what makes America so great. Commendations straight ahead.
I want to commend Tunde Onokoya, the founder of a group called Chess in Slums Africa. I love what this group is doing. Um, Tunde Onokoya and his group, they want children to believe that their dreams can come true, just like he did, even when circumstances are hard. So he is on a mission to bring chess to some of the most disadvantaged communities in Nigeria. And he's the founder of this group, and he believes that the game can change children's lives. It changed his. He grew up in the slums of, uh, you know, in, in Nigeria, and right now he is, he used to live under a bridge, and he used chess in order to get a better life for himself. He's a, a chess champion now, and now he's trying to give that same opportunity to other children. And I just love this. My brother is a big chess player. He actually has a whole chess channel on Twitch. And uh, I think um, I think chess is a great game. I wish I was better at it. I, I think it teaches strategic thinking. It's just fun to play. And uh, it's not usually an expensive game to play. And I think it's just just great. And I love this group, Chess in Slums Africa. I also want to give a commendation to Elon Musk and Starlink. SpaceX has constructed a ground station in Fiji that is allowing residents of Tonga to access the Internet via its Starlink satellites. Uh, Apparently, Elon Musk uh, established this gateway station in Fiji in order to get Internet back to the island of Tonga. Tonga has been totally cut off from the world. The only undersea cable that connected Tonga to the Internet was damaged during the eruption of this volcano uh, in January, and repairs to the cable are expected to take several more weeks. Since then, communication in Tonga has only been possible with high-frequency radio and satellite phones that work with satellites in higher orbits. So... Thankfully, Elon Musk has spent a lot of money connecting these people to the Internet. And I don't know that the whole uh, the whole island is connected yet, but they are certainly getting there. So I, I want to give a commendation to Elon Musk. I also want to give a commendation to Brendan Kelby. Brendan Kelby is now a Guinness World Record holder. He now holds the record for the tallest stack of M&Ms. That's right. Um, This incredible, skilled person has set the world record. He's from Australia. And he just broke the previous record by stacking a tower of M&Ms. He has stacked a whopping six. M&M's. Wow. That is the new world record. Six M&M's in a stack. Try it. It's more difficult than you think. The previous world record was five. Uh, the record was first set in 2016 with four M&M's. And so now the world record is six M&M's. We have some M&M's here. I may try and do some stacking uh, here. But, they, you know, maybe I'll stay away from them. I'll be too tempted to eat them. I want to commend um, Casey Clemens. Casey Clemens is... The very first, he's the son of former New York Yankee and Boston Red Sox player Roger Clemens. And he is the very first player drafted by the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. Now, look, 
unless there's a major breakthrough today, it's looking like Major League Baseball is not going to start the regular season on time. And now at this point, it's on the owners. Uh, The players have offered concessions. The owners aren't coming to the table. But if you're a baseball fan like I am, you're going to be jonesing even more to see live baseball. And our owner, John Katsimatidis, along with The Rock's ex-wife, along with Pete Davidson, along with Colin Jost, along with uh, the Yankees, they have uh, embarked on this new adventure for the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. They're going to be playing in Staten Island. And the very first player they signed was Casey Clemens, first official member of the Ferry Hawks. He's a 27-year-old drafted out of the University of Texas by the Blue Jays in 2017. He's a first baseman by trade, but he spent the last two seasons playing in independent leagues, and now he's going to try his hand in the Atlantic League. Um, And I'm excited about this. Obviously, his father's very well-known in baseball circles and, uh, you know, was a big part of the Red Sox championship teams and the Yankees uh, championship teams. He's won seven Cy Young Awards, and now he's going to be playing ball in New York again. Casey Clemens, the very first player for the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. I have a feeling that is going to be a pretty historic distinction. And I'm wishing him the best of luck and wishing the Ferry Hawks the best of luck. If you didn't hear it, by the way, I would encourage you to listen to John Katsimatidis' interview Sunday morning with my friend Gary Perone. He's the general manager of the Staten Island Ferry Hawks, and he's doing a great job. And uh, it's, it's going to be uh, very tough getting everything ready for opening day in the spring. But Gary, I know, is working around the clock. So be sure to listen to that interview if you haven't. I want to give a commendation to Philip Crowther. Philip Crowther is a reporter for the Associated Press. This man is incredible. He was a, is a reporter from for the AP. He was reporting the other day as this war was breaking out from Kiev, Ukraine. Now, that's not so amazing, but he reported in six different languages. And in this video, and you could find it on his Twitter, he tweeted it out. He talked about the current um, Ukrainian-Russian conflict in English, German, French, Portuguese, Spanish, and Luxembourgish. Now, I find this so incredibly impressive. Not only that he's able to speak this many languages, but that he's able to go back and forth so quickly with these languages and, and have, apparently, a coherent command of the facts. Again, my Luxembourgish is not the greatest, so for all I know, he could have been spouting gibberish, but the guy sounded like he knows what he's talking about. And at the end of the day, when it comes to reporting... That's so much of what people are looking for is something that sounds good. And, uh, I mean, hats off to you, Philip Crowther, a great journalist and a fine linguist. I want to give a commendation to the Netherlands. Oh, yes, the Netherlands uh, finishing number one on the most thoughtful societies index Uh, The most thoughtful societies index, which studies a wide range of factors related to thoughtfulness, such as volunteering rates, charitable donations, the level of gender and minority equality, and they identify the most considerate societies in the world. And the United States ranks inside the top 50. We made the top 50. In fact, we're number 10. But the Netherlands is number one as the most 
thoughtful society in the world filed by Canada and Finland. Um, and there are other highlights as well. People from Indonesia, for instance, make the most private donations to charity. And uh, people in the USA do the most volunteering. So that's nice. Saudi Arabia, even. Uh, they rank highest for elderly support provided by family members. That's nice. I'm, not, I'm happy to hear that. And if you think about it, it makes sense. That's a society that uh, puts a lot of value in terms of uh, supporting your elders. So congratulations to you, all of you that are in the Netherlands. And I have to give a commendation to my friend, Assemblyman Michael Cusick. Uh, I don't want to repeat everything that I've had to say about Mike Cusick over the last couple of days. I posted a lengthy Facebook message about Mike Cusick yesterday. You can go to my Facebook and, and read it, facebook.com slash Fan. I also did a video in which I talked about him the day before, uh, facebook.com slash Fan. You can watch that video as my wife was driving to Long Island. Assemblyman Mike Cusick has been in the state legislature for 20 years. This is one of the finest public officials I've ever known. Uh, The man is a gifted public servant, and he announced a couple of days ago that he was not going to run for re-election. This so breaks my heart. He was my assemblyman until I moved about a year ago, and the man is, to call him a, a, he's a public servant in every sense of the word. These days, it seems like if you're a politician, what you do is you run to social media and you think of the most extreme, hyperbolic thing in the world in the hopes of getting a lot of retweets and comments and become viral and uh, try and get on TV. Mike Cusick's not like that. He does most of his legislating behind the scenes and uh, has no problem working with Republicans, even though he's a Democrat, and... uh, He's delivered win after win after win for his constituents, and he's done it quietly, and he hasn't sought the limelight. I urged him for years to run for Congress or run for borough president, and he's ultimately stayed in the Assembly. I don't know what he's going to do next, but I hope he chooses to stay in government because um, we're going to be a lot worse off uh, for, for losing him. To lose him and Diane Savino in the same election cycle, she's a, a state senator and she's a regular on uh, various programs on the station. It's such a shame. It's such a shame. Albany is worse off for losing Michael Cusick and Diane Savino. I, whoever emerges as a candidate for his seat is going to have some pretty big shoes to fill. I met one candidate that's running for his seat yesterday, and uh, he seems like a great guy, but... Um, He's not easily replaced. And, you know, last thing I'll say about Mike, when he and I were speaking on uh, Thursday about this decision, he actually, and I, I don't mean to tell a tale out of school, but I think it conveys how important public service was to him and his family. His father was a Supreme Court justice. His uncle was the public administrator. Mother, who I knew very well, was a longtime activist. He's describing how he spent more than half his life in Albany first as a staffer and then as a legislator. And he actually started crying. That's how emotional this was for him and this decision. And, you know, I've thought about running for the state legislature many times over the years. And the thing that has stopped me is, one, this show, because this is really what I've always dreamed of doing. But also being married and now having a child, my wife has made clear that it would be 
like she would be very difficult for her and her son if I were to be in Albany half the year. And Mike has a five-year-old, and he said ultimately that's what made him choose not to do this anymore, is wanting to be present for his five-year-old daughter. And I really appreciate that. He's also the chairman of the Democratic Party, and he's a conservative. And it, it, it was so difficult for him, and he never complained, never complained. It was so difficult for him to be a conservative and be the leader of the Democratic Party because he had it from all angles. He had it from he got it from the Republicans who worked hard to run a candidate against him because his district was so conservative. He got it from the Democrats who didn't feel he was progressive enough. He got it from the other elected officials who felt he was doing this or doing that. And he was able to do this delicate balancing act as chairman of the party and as an elected official as Democrat representing a conservative district flawlessly. I'm going to miss him a great deal as a public official. Obviously, we're still going to be friends. Speaking of friends, I also want to give a commendation to civil court judge Brendan Lantry. He had his you heard Curtis talking about this yesterday. He had his uh, swearing in ceremony yesterday. He's now officially a civil court judge. Um, The youngest civil court, the youngest sitting judge in New York City at only 35 years old. Now, that is impressive. Got a very bright future. And uh, who knows what becomes of him? Might be um, might be on uh, on the appellate division someday, right? Or presiding justice of the 13th Judicial District. You never know. But uh, he's worked hard for this. Worked for many many years. Wishing you the uh, best of luck, Judge Lantry. I have my son call him Uncle Judge because uh, we have that kind of relationship that's familial. I want to commend all of the SAG winners. Last night was the SAG Awards. I am a proud member of SAG-AFTRA, that union, and I want to commend all the winners, especially, and I haven't seen any of the movies that won, but I especially want to commend the uh, the film CODA, which won the award for Outstanding Performance by a Cast in a Motion Picture, and I want to commend the series um, Ted Lasso, which did very well. That was the uh, award for Outstanding Performance by an Ensemble Comedy Series And uh, there was uh, a lot of awards that I, I haven't seen most of these movies or most of these shows because, you know, I, I don't have a lot of time to watch this stuff. But um, you could tell any a lot of these shows are the product of a lot of hard work. And it's great to be awarded by your colleagues and recognized by your colleagues. And I've always found the SAG Awards to be extra special because it's your fellow performers that get to vote on them. And then lastly, I want to commend Wyoming, a new study released by topagency.com with eight key dimensions, measures the best state to live in. And would you believe it? The best state to live in in the country is Wyoming. That's right. I never would have guessed that. If you gave me 50 guesses, I still don't know that I would have come up with Wyoming. Sure enough, uh, if you look at the categories that they took into account, most affordable, safest, best economy, best education system, best health care system, best infrastructure, best quality of life. If you l- combine them all, the state that comes out ahead is Wyoming. There you have it. No wonder Liz Cheney seems like she's always in such a good mood, right? Um, that does it for... 
this edition of Commendations. If you want to comment on anybody I commended, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. Dog goes woof, cat goes meow, bird goes tweet, and mouse goes squeak. Cow goes loose, frog goes croak, and the elephant goes toot. Ducks and quack, and fish go blub, and the seal goes ow, ow, ow. But there's no sound that no one knows. What does the fox say? I love this song. It's one of the stupidest songs in the world. I can't even pronounce the the singer that does it. It's like Yilvis or something. Um, I love this. I find it catchy. I I, I just love everything about it. Great. It's very dated now. It's over 10 years old. Uh, Maybe more. Maybe 12 years old. But I I find it as catchy as can be. I just love it. And then there was a Saturday Night Live parody of this song with Jay Farrow. Which I found just as catchy, and the video I thought was hilarious. It's called What Does My Girl Say? It's available on the YouTube. Uh, You might ask yourself, why am I saying the YouTube? Well, what I've decided, I came to a very important decision yesterday, is I keep hearing people say the Ukraine. The Ukraine, the Ukraine, the Ukraine. I went to Judge Lantry's uh, induction yesterday. And they begin by saying, oh, can we have a moment of silence for our loved ones in the Ukraine? Uh, I, I, I hear commentators on TV, on radio, Curtis, uh, for hours, uh, the Ukraine, the Ukraine, the Ukraine. Now, it's not the Ukraine. It has not been the Ukraine in the entire time that Ukraine has been a country, right? So if you look at the the constitution of this country it specifically says the name is ukraine now why do people keep saying the ukraine there's no reason for the ukraine and it's funny again i shouldn't tell you this but it's 10 to 4 in the morning and i feel i feel we have a kinship and i can share some of these things i was talking in the first hour with jeffrey gurian about um you know when it's okay to joke about certain things and when it's not and basically, Jeffrey's attitude was why uh, was he doesn't joke about sensitive things. Well, look, maybe this is exhibit triple Z in terms of why I'm going to be canceled. But I do joke about things even when they're very sensitive. Right. And <laughs> I, I was on I was doing another radio show. Uh, I, I was doing the Cats Roundtable and I was on with another guest before we started taping. And I was telling somebody I was telling the Mert how it's not Ukraine. It's not the Ukraine. It's Ukraine. And so then one of the other guests starts saying, and with a very dry sense of humor, this is all fair. He says, yeah, I hear that's what the whole war is about. They should be called the Ukraine or not. And I just found it to be the funniest thing in the world. I, again, I, I hate to laugh about that when 350,000 people are now refugees and fleeing their home and people are dying. But uh, I did find that remark kind of funny. So what I've decided that I'm doing is I am now inserting the before all sorts of communities 
that don't have the in it. I'm not talking about the Bronx or the Netherlands. I'm now talking about the Taiwan, the Queens, the New York, the Russia, the Canada, because if you can't beat them, join them. And for what I have been like Sisyphus trying to push a rock up a hill. That was Sisyphus, right? Do we know? How's your Greek mythology? Was that Sisyphus? Okay. I think it's Sisyphus. But maybe whether it's Sisyphus or not, I'm the guy that was pushing that rock up the hill, trying to get people to say Ukraine instead of the Ukraine. Well, I give up. That rock, you can go right back down the hill because I'm throwing in the towel and I am now, rather than get people to say Ukraine instead of the Ukraine, um, I am now saying the before everything. For instance, I will uh, say hello to Mark in the New Haven. Hello, Mark. Hey, Frank. How's Ruffle and the baby? Everybody good? Everybody's great. Thank you. Excellent. So I, I'm, I'm full of all sorts of thoughts. Um, I'm angry at the Clintons because I think the whole Ukraine thing is about them. It's their fault. But, but I really called to talk about Tulsi Gabbard. And it, it brought to mind something that George Will said many years ago. He said that the, the left is, is for diversity in all things except thought. Well, I, I, again, I, and, and, and it's not just that, Mark, and whether it's academia, whether it's the Supreme Court. It's not just thought where I find a lot of uh, my progressive friends a little lacking. It's professional diversity, right? You know, um, Katan- and academic diversity, Katanji Brown-Jackson she certainly seems like a very brilliant woman, and I think she should certainly be confirmed. I think any Supreme Court justice that's appointed by a president, Democrat or Republican, as long as they're, you know, not, uh, you know, some buffoon somewhere. I mean, if a president start, tries to appoint his dog to the Supreme Court, of course, the Senate should reject that. But no president would do that these days. I think the president should be given a lot of deference to whomever their Supreme Court pick is. But. With Katanji Brown-Jackson, I appreciate the fact that she has some trial lawyer experience, which nobody on the court these days does. In fact, she's the first person on the court since Thurgood Marshall to have significant trial lawyer experience. But this is yet another Harvard alum, again, somebody from the Court of Appeals, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Can we find somebody that had some different jobs and somebody that went to some different schools? I was listening, I think, on Face the Nation. I don't know. All these Sunday shows blur to me. I I think it was Face the Nation only because I watch CBS uh, Sunday morning, and sometimes it just stays on CBS. We didn't make it to church yesterday um, because we had a late night Saturday, and I was looking after the baby as Rachel was getting ready as we were leaving for this induction. And sometimes I'll just leave CBS on the nation. But they did an interview with Jim Clyburn, and they played some old quotes of him talking about another Supreme Court nominee that he was advocating for. And he pointed out when he was advocating for this person who Biden didn't pick, he said she went to state schools. Wouldn't that be great to have someone that went to a state school elevated to the Supreme Court? Doesn't have to all be Harvard and Yale. As it stands now, assuming Katanji Brown-Jackson is confirmed, the only member of the court that did not go to Harvard or Yale, Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, they're great schools, Harvard and Yale. I'm not taking anything away from them. But don't you think this contributes to some sort of groupthink? I do.
800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Mike is in the New Hyde Park. Hello, Mike. Indeed, the New Hyde Park, I agree. Um, I'm not in a position to debate the colonel on anything because, as you said, he's got a Ph.D., a ton of field experience, and I thank him for serving. The red flag for me was when he referred to Vladimir Putin as a devout anything, orthodox or anything else. The only His only devotion is to Stalin and the former Soviet Union, and that historically speaks for itself. All right. Well, I, I don't agree, uh, Mike. And uh, look, you, you're entitled to your opinion, obviously, uh, but I completely disagree uh, with that. Um, I, look, you know, people can make their own judgments. Um We'll continue to take your calls next hour. Here's one thing I was wondering. So do you remember those guys that came in here a few a few weeks ago from Arthur Avenue Pizza? So they're nice guys. I met them once before. And basically, you know, they, they wanted to come in here and drop off some frozen pizzas for me. And um, in the hopes that I guess I would talk about it if I liked it. And they wanted, I'm sure more importantly, to leave some for John Katsimatidis because John, in addition to owning a radio station, has a grocery empire. So I took my batch home. And then, uh, did you get any, Molly? Did I give you one of those frozen pizzas? No, you didn't get it. Okay, well, I must have taken hers. But um, I took—I think I gave one to, I think I gave one to someone else. I don't remember who. But anyway, um, they came in here and I took mine home. And then I left another bag for John Katsimatidis. I gave it to our president, Chad, to give to John. Now, I noticed that Chad put it in the refrigerator. So when I was in the next day, I moved it to the freezer. I don't know if he ever made John aware of this. But a few days ago, we tried this frozen pizza. I got to tell you, this is the most phenomenal frozen pizza I've ever had in my life. And I'm not a frozen pizza guy. Look, I live in a place. I live in New York. We have the best pizza in the world. And my wife made this frozen pizza for herself. She said, you want to try a slice? I said, no, you know, I'm not I'm not a frozen pizza guy. I try it. It's incredible. It's incredible. Now, look, they're not an advertiser or anything, um, and they're not paying me at all. I'm not getting payola. The only thing I'm getting is pizza. Uh, so uh, I guess you could call it pizzaola if that's a thing. I don't think it's a prohibition on pizzaola. But if you want to try some great frozen pizza, I would recommend this stuff. Uh, Arthur Avenue Pizza. But anyway, the reason I mention it, is because I don't think Chad ever gave John this frozen pizza. So I think it's still sitting in the freezer now. So I'm wondering, I mean, it's now there a week or two. Is it okay for me to take that home? Because now that I know how good this pizza is, I'm kind of wondering if I can take that home. Uh, or, I mean, look, I'm going to remind John that that pizza is there and do the right thing. But maybe I take a pie or two out of that bag because it was uh, it was pretty good. I got to tell you, um, if you want to try it, it's Arthur Avenue Pizza. All right, um, 800-848-9222 if you have a theory on that as well. Coming up next hour, we got a lot to get to, including some strategies if you're an older person to stay sharp. Hmm. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Grant, who was sharp well into his 80s, your influence counts. Make sure you use it.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Um, so, uh, you know, there's one thing that I really value. I mean, obviously, I value my family, my son especially, and, you know, just my family in general and the very diverse group of friends that I've managed to put together over the course of a lifetime. But in terms of personal characteristics, there's not a lot of things that I feel that I am exceptional at, right? Um, One of the few things that I do think I'm exceptional at is um, bouncing coins off of my elbow and catching them. I, I can, I mean, my skill at this is probably better than almost anyone you've ever met. And Sometimes when we're stuck here in a snowstorm and you have people uh, waiting around for five, six, seven, eight hours, I my favorite thing to do is just say, uh, hey, give me all the coins that you have in your pocket. And then I just catch them all off my shoulder. It's really quite a sight to behold. But who cares about that? Nobody. Does nothing for anybody. Now, once in a while, it'll earn you a free beer or something. But other than that, who cares? The other thing that I really value um, in terms of my own personal characteristics, is my memory. Uh, I have uh, – people sometimes make the mistake of thinking I'm very bright. I am absolutely not very bright. The only thing the, – the reason I'm able to fool some people into thinking I'm exceptionally bright, which I'm not, is because – one, I speak fairly well. And as Rush Limbaugh used to say – Learn how to read, write, and speak the English language to the best of your ability. And if you could do that, you convey to people, whether it's true or not, that you're very intelligent. Now, I've tried to do that. I'd like to think I can read, write, and speak English well. But because I have a memory, I I mean, not to sound self-congratulating, but because I have a memory like a steel trap, I'm able to remember facts. I'm able to – I don't have a photographic memory by any means. I think very few people do. But I'm able to remember dialogue. I'm able to remember conversations. I'm able to remember characteristics. And I'm able to remember you know, substantive policy analysis. So I'm able to regurgitate that back to folks sometimes, sometimes 10, 20, 25 years later. And I'm able to kind of fool people into thinking that you know, I'm smarter than I am. But even more than being able to fool people to think that I'm smart, this memory of mine has provided me with so much enjoyment over the years and so much entertainment. I really think, and it's easy for me to say, never having done this, I really think that I would do okay in solitary confinement because there are times when I'm on the bus, when I'm sitting by myself, whenever, subway, where I just sit and think. And remember things. And it brings me so much joy. That is why my greatest fear in life is dementia or Alzheimer's. And uh, I I have known many people and I've had people in my family, including my Uncle Carmine, um, who have been robbed of their memory. And it's painful for me to watch. My greatest fear in life is to be struck with dementia. And if I could have one wish granted, it would be um, to not have that, to maintain my memory as it is now.
for the rest of my days, whether I have a week left to live or a, a century. And that's why I'm always on the lookout for different studies that say different things about how to maintain your mental acuity and your mental agu- uh, uh, mental acuity, m- mental mental acuteness, if that's a word. I think it is. So, see, that's how well I speak the English language, that I'm not sure if the words I'm using are actual words. But um, there are always things that rank high in terms of habits that help you maintain your mental agility and stave off dementia. One of them happens to be exercise. And that's something, admittedly, I don't do nearly enough of. And uh, I, I, I'm i always trying to do a little more of that. And uh, I will, uh, again, especially once Lent starts and I start watching what I eat and stop drinking, that's when it becomes easier to incorporate exercise uh, into your daily regimen. Exercise is something that study after study has shown will help stave off mental decline. But I came across this article on Friday, which I found so interesting. And then I went and read every article that was written on this that I could find on the Internet and different source material and the study itself. Apparently, there's a new study from a team at the University of Michigan. They studied over 1,300 people with an average age of 65, and they found one thing that helped delay aging in the brain. And I think it's going to surprise you. It surprised me, but then the more I thought about it, I wasn't surprised. Apparently, they found that owning a pet delays aging in your brain. Moreover, these benefits were greater for, if you could believe this, and this is an academic study, these benefits were greater for black pet parents, people with a college education, and men. Now, I'm not black in spite of you know my hair style, but I am a man and I am college educated. Do you know what this guarantees? This means no matter what is happening in my life at any given time, I will always be a pet owner. Now, probably I would have always been a pet owner anyway um, because I really, you know, like animals. But, I mean, certainly there's a scenario where if I'm still working these crazy hours and uh, my wife throws me out of the house and banishes me and I, I, I could have easily said to myself if I'm living by myself in a, you know, in an apartment somewhere, do I really need a pet? Answer, yes. Yes, I do. So it got me thinking, I know we have a lot of people that listen to this show that are a little older. And we have a lot of people that listen to this show who are very, very sharp. We've gotten calls from people that are 85, 90, 95, 100, who are sharper than I am. And so I thought it might be interesting, not only for me, but for many of you who are getting on in years, if we could come up with a collaborative list of things that you found help maintain your mental agility. So what do you, what do you think as you get older 
helps you stay sharp. 800-848-9222. Whatever it is, it is. If it's crossword puzzles, if it's listening to talk radio, if it's owning a pet, if it's exercising, if it's something else, what is it? 800-848-9222. That's a question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. Now, um, I mentioned the SAG Awards a few minutes ago, and uh, that happened yesterday. Michael Keaton apparently was uh, nominated for a SAG Award, and he won. I did not see the film that he uh, that he won for. I'm a big fan of Michael Keaton, whose real name, believe it or not, you know what it is with my incredible memory, I can tell you? You know what Michael Keaton's real name is? Um, Michael Douglas. So he was nominated for Dope Sick. I'm not sure if Dope Sick is a television program or a film, but it's gotten great reviews. People love it. And so anyway, he was nominated and he won, but it was very interesting. Oh, it's a miniseries. Okay, thank you, Matt. It was um, very interesting because Selma Hayek is presenting him his award and Michael Keaton was in the bathroom. Now, I know the old saying, when you got to go, you got to go. But wouldn't you think that if you're, you know your award's coming up and you know you might win, wouldn't you stick around and, I don't know, wait to use the restroom after or go before? I mean, is could it have been that much of an emergency or that much of a line at the bathroom that he was still stuck there? I really... Um, I, I was very surprised. This was the scene at the SAG Awards yesterday. Michael Keaton. Keaton. Don't see. Nowhere to be found. Now Are he you starts running me? up. I have stage fright. So then he um, runs up and he skips the stairs entirely and he rolls onto the stage. And then he says, uh, you know, uh, sorry, thank you very much. Quick trip to the men's room. It's packed, by the way. That's what he said. So uh, it's kind of funny. That's one of the things I like about these award shows is that it's live. It's live television. Same thing I like about talk radio. It's live. You never know what's going to happen. Not scripted. It's uh, unpredictable. Um, Quick update on the Ukraine situation. Douglas McGregor, Colonel Douglas McGregor, just emailed me. Evidently, there will be talks tomorrow between the Ukrainians and the Russians, or I guess maybe it's today, in Belarus. So hopefully uh, they will be able to negotiate a way to end this crisis. And uh, it's going to be held in Belarus. And a lot of people's lives will depend on the outcome of these negotiations. All right. How do you stay sharp even as you get older? 800-848-9222. Jim is in Center Reach, Long Island. Hello, Jim. Jim, I got you. All right, Jim has other priorities. 800-848-WABC. George is in Manhattan. Hello, George. Hello, Frank. I'm in the Manhattan, yes. Yes, the Manhattan, excuse me, yes. 
Um, so I, I'm 59 years old, and I started to uh, – I have a young child, and it was starting to bother me that I couldn't remember names. Uh, you know, I was forgetting stuff that somebody might have told me, a name they might have told me. And so I went to uh, Wild Cornell, where uh, a lot of my doctors are located, and I saw a top neurologist, and I said, listen – I'm forgetting these things. It's scaring me. I'm worried about dementia, Alzheimer's. And what do I do? My wife plays Sudoku. She seems to be very sharp. I don't do that. She says, uh, what's going to keep you sharp is exactly what you have. And that's that young child. That young child is what you need to focus on. That'll keep you as sharp as a tack. And, uh, so Sudoku, no Sudoku, no, the young child. Those are the things that will keep you young. So and, I need to keep to... having young children. Well, yes, they'll keep you occupied and they'll keep your mind. Well, this will come as very unwelcome news to my wife. I think she figures she has only a few good childbearing years left and uh, probably will not want to have children 10, 15, 20 years from now. But. I guess, I, I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, if that's what works for George, I'm willing to try it. 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Mike is in the Hoboken. Hello, Mike. Hey, how are you, Frank? Um, yeah, the thing is you have to keep reading and you have to play chess. Play chess? That's interesting. My brother um, is a big uh, chess guy. He He has a whole Twitch channel. Uh, a couple of times a week where um where you know uh, he, yeah he well he he basically teaches it um so that's, that's great that's great and also maybe learn the piano so okay play chess and learn the piano and read read well i do read a fair amount actually so that's I read a lot of things i have 4000 books wow that's a that's I have four thousand uh, books. I, I'm envious. I'm envious. I do. I like to read. I like to read. So I got read, play chess, have young children, and uh, we have so far, according to the study, have a pet. What else? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Al is in the Manhattan. Um, hello, Al. Good morning, Frank. Uh, excellent uh, interview you had there before. Thank um, you. As far as you're welcome. As far as for you, you've got about 30 years before it's all going to happen. Do I think it will happen? Yes. I think it'll happen to you. I think it'll happen to Curtis, probably Trump. You look at Biden. Uh, you look C- at, Curtis uh, is losing his mind as it is. Uh, and I don't think age has anything to do with it. I think uh, too many hits to the head mean, is what has done it for Curtis. Yeah, that's 100% true. You know, hits are terrible because the brain, it turns out, is a lot more sensitive to any kind of shock. Uh, here's the thing. It's diet. It's sleep. It's exercise, it's social networking, and heredity. You have heredity in there, not so good. you got to be on the lookout for it. You sleep, you don't get seven hours, eight hours solid, that's not good. Mm. All right, for resetting the memory the last hour. Food, uh, some things I've been finding out lately. Uh, first of all, upper mouth, uh, important. Why? If you get abscesses, all those pluses end up going through the blood-brain barrier, and you get inflammation. Inflammation is the key. Sugar, very bad. They find the call Alzheimer's uh, diabetes type 3, okay? When you sleep, sleep on your side, preferably to your left. Well, why? Because then your stomach doesn't regurgitate. But the main thing is the amyloid plaques 
which tangle up on, into your neurons, will get to wipe away the waste every day. That's why it's imperative to have like seven or eight hours of sleep in addition to storing memories. And guess what? Again, with the brain. Brain people think, oh, that's it. You're born with that on cells. No, wrong. When you go home, go home a different way. You write with your right hand, go a little bit with your left hand. Try to learn a new language. Do a little light boxing or dancing. Tai Chi in the morning. Gardening. All these things help the brain to become stimulated. The problem is people get a routine. Wake up, turn on the radio, eat lunch, go back to bed. Over and over again, the brain is not getting any new stimulation. You know, it's funny, Al. Some of these, some of these same strategies are in a terrific book by Dr. Norman Doidge called The Brain That Changes Itself. And he chronicles a lot of people that have done some of the things that you suggest. And, uh, and yeah, I think a lot of these things, including the writing with a different hand and everything, that has helped a lot of people. And I think it's, uh, I think it's impo- important to note. Uh, that's all good stuff, Al. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Howard is in the Elmhurst. Hello, Howard. There are two things. I have an eclectic book collection. I have about 800 books, and it's terrific. And a lot of them are coffee table books. And the other thing is I, I was a hike leader, and planning out hikes, being imaginative, finding new places, those are great things, and that will help pe- keep people young and the exercise, of course. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, look, exercise, that's the one thing everybody, all the experts seem to agree upon. Uh, everybody agrees that exercise will not only do wonders for you physically, but it'll do a lot of things for your brain. What else? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Chris is in Elmsford. Hello, Chris. Hey, what's up, my man? How you doing? I, I would venture to say I'm doing pretty well. Okay, I'm not as well as you, but I'm pretty good myself. <laughs> anyway, um, I wanted to say, Frank, um, the one thing I've noticed, you got to pardon me, I don't have my teeth in, man. I, I'm 56, so I had to make a sacrifice a couple of years ago to give them up for health reasons. Well, what, what, is that, that, what do you mean you had to make the sacrifice? What, did you donate them to someone? <laughs> I don't know who would take rotten teeth. Jeez, <laughs> oh, I hate to hear that. Uh, but go yeah, ahead. I'd rather have a functioning brain than a full mouth of teeth, I suppose. <laughs> That's right. And um, one of the things I've been working on is just going back in my mind when I was 18 and thinking about like what I wanted to do after high school, that was like actually realistic. And um, I've been able to do that. You know, one of the things I wanted to do was sound design. So over the years, the past 20 years, in fact, I've been able to build myself a studio and now I can do that. Oh, that's cool. So what do you make music and stuff? You make sounds, you make anything that comes to mind, you capture it because you'll probably never hear it again. Because, you know, it's just like little tweaking and you're, you're just sitting there nitpicking over what sound is, you know. And it's the best thing in the world, man, when you find something that nobody else has ever heard. Well, that's terrific. Uh, that's a great strategy. It's a great suggestion. Thank you, Chris. Best of luck um, trying to chew things. And um, by the way, uh, just a quick update on this pizza situation. If you're just tuning in, we had this incredible frozen pizza, best frozen pizza I've ever had. And the people that dropped it off, they gave me some, and then they left some for John Katzmatidis. And I gave it to Chad because he sees John every day when John does his show. I'm not here at 5 p.m., so I don't see John. I don't. I, Chad, I think, left it in the freezer. 
And so now that I've tried this pizza and how good it is, I'm wondering if it makes sense to take some of this back. But John has heard me talking about it, and now obviously I can't take the pizza home. So, John and Margo, if you're listening, the pizza is in the refrigerator. Enjoy this. You will enjoy this very much. Walter is in the Yonkers. Hello, Walter. Yes, hi. Good good evening. Uh, Frank. From memory? Yes. Oh, Frank. I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, Scrabble and crossword puzzles. Well, uh, I mean, I've heard crossword puzzles and Scrabble, I guess, you flex a similar intellectual muscle there. It it did seem to me, Walter, though, that you had some difficulty remembering my name. Is that the best commercial for Scrabble and crossword puzzles, if that was the case? Yeah, I was a little bit nervous at the beginning, so I, I'm sorry about that. Oh no, it's yeah, okay. but those are the two. Those are the two best things: Scrabble and crossword puzzles. Okay, hey, I'm willing to try it. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Hey, dude, Frank. I'm an old geezer. I'll be sixty four, and uh, I like uh, cats. Like pets a lot. Cats, dogs, and reading and writing. But that's riding motorcycles. Do lots of reading, too. Stay young. All right. Well, that's good advice. Thank you, Jay. Um, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I'll tell you what I don't know will do much for you in terms of keeping you sharp, but it is as entertaining as can be, and that's listening to Curtis Lee's weekend overnight show. I find myself listening uh, all the time to Curtis on the weekend. And I got to tell you, even when he's making fun of me, uh, the guy is hysterical. The guy is a real showman. And the fact that he, first of all, I don't know how he's able to do 20 hours all on the air by himself with no guests. I mean, I guess it's a lot easier when you're not troubling yourself with being accurate in any of the things that you're saying. But still, it is quite a challenge. And it's quite impressive because He's not only incredibly entertaining, and I find myself, like, even though I know that he's lying about me, I or, you know, I don't, he's not lying. He's, uh, you know, theater of the mind. He's making things up for comedic effect. I find myself hooked on the story and wondering, well, is that really true? Does Frank really have a 24-pound infant? And I think to myself, wait a minute, I'm Frank. I'm Frank, and no, I don't have a 24-pound infant. That's what a master he is. It's funny. When we worked with Warner Wolf, Warner, um, you know, Warner used to take the train to work every day, I think. And, um, you know, he lived in Manhattan. And Curtis created on the air this image of Warner getting picked up by a limo with a driver named Jeeves every day. And I was amazed at the number of people who asked me, so so Warner really has a, a limo driver come pick him up every day? I said, no, what do you mean? You you believe in Curtis? How do people still believe Curtis? But they do. That's how convincing he is. I guess that's why he's so good doing all these ads that he does. So I was the amazing thing with Curtis, though, is he's gotten all these callers to buy in to his – Anti-Frank shtick, which is, you know, total shtick. I mean, Curtis is, he loves me, um, but he has now spent 11 hours every weekend doing nothing but bashing me. So he, he 
takes a call about my garbage situation. Now, if you're not familiar with my garbage situation, somebody has been dropping garbage in front of my house. And um, the, and they've now done it a few times. I don't know who it is. Uh, I have my suspicions, but whatever. That is the context of this particular call that Curtis took over the weekend. You know, I got to share something with you. I wasn't going to say anything, but when you said something about intel on uh, Frank Morano, I happen to know he's done a terrible thing, and I'd like to share it with you, my friend. How, how terrible is terrible? Well, it could be a lot worse, but uh, uh, let me give you an overview. I I go out and walk my dog the last 30 years from about 2 till 4 a.m., and uh, I actually feel that helps me sleep the rest of the morning till about 11 a.m. But, uh, you know, being in the city, I I hear everything, and I pay attention to everything in the middle of the night, just me and the dog. And I heard Frank's uh, front door jar, and I looked over my left shoulder. Well, to set it up, the week before last, he was telling the listeners that uh, he had been out on the front porch to light a cigar, and his neighbor came over and asked him if he knew that somebody had been throwing massive amounts of trash between their two properties. And Frank said, well, we'll have to get together tomorrow and uh, a team effort, you know, and try to clean up this mess. And and uh, but I happen to know, I've seen it with my own eyes. Mm. The culprit in all the trash between their property was actually Frank Morano. He, um, he did it to himself. Well, between their two properties, I heard the door jar that mm. that night before, and I looked <laughs> over my left shoulder, and I seen him come out the front door with uh, three big black bags of trash. And uh, he had on a ski mask, you know, the kind where the front's mostly completely open. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, he had that signature uh, foot-long black 10-cent cigar he smokes shoved in his mouth. Yeah, that's him. Yep, he made his way down the steps, and uh, I kind of slowed down with the dog. And uh, he went over to his neighbor's uh, (laughs) bush line there. It's on the east side of their home, and Mm. he ripped the first bag open. It was big mounds of white used pampers, and he started kicking those into the bushes. Mm. Carmine, that that uh, had to be Carmine's pampers, Carmine. Yeah, the baby probably. Yeah, yeah, you know, all soil too. Nasty, nasty. Oh yeah, I wondered what his pant leg looked like after he was kicking on those things, but. of course, I couldn't see in the dark, but then he brought out a little pen-style flashlight, almost looked like a little laser pointer, and he gently ripped open a big black bag of beer cans, and to keep them from rattling, he kind of, you know, didn't kick as hard. He just kind of took a side of his foot and shoved him in the man's bushes, and mm. and then there was a third bag that looked like household kitchen trash and whatnot, but... Uh, I just thought it was ironic for him to 
say that he had been out the next evening, earlier in the evening, and him and his neighbor agreed to clean it up. And when he was the actual culprit in the whole ordeal, uh, the scammer, you might say, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I couldn't keep keep quiet anymore. I had to share it with someone. Thank goodness. Thank goodness for this whistleblower. Uh, so Deb Valentine came in as this clip is playing, and she said, we can't wait to hear this defense. There's no defense. None of that ever happened. The defense is it didn't happen. The, the defense is he's made, he made this up every single syllable. I don't know who that guy is. Why would I really? dump trash on my own property? I mean, the, again, this is what I'm saying is amazing with Curtis, is that he not only has created this fantasy world for himself, but he now has these callers buying in to making up stories about me. This is incredible. He's this caller. They're calling it garbage gate. And uh, I think Curtis coined that term. <laughs> this caller is crafting this image that I'm creating my own garbage scandal, which is not the case. Almost like when Martin Downey Jr. claimed that he was um, assaulted by Nazis. And then he drew the swastika on his own head and it turned out he was not assaulted by white supremacists. It was he beat himself up like in the movie Liar Liar. Or when Jussie Smollett uh, said that he was attacked by those racist Trump supporters, turned out it didn't happen. They're saying I created this garbage incident. Let me assure you, I'll take a lie detector test and and pledge to you I did not throw garbage on my own property. And I do not smoke 10 cent cigars. There are no more 10 cents cigars. Where do you even find a 10 cent cigar? Outrageous. Nothing's 10 cents. Even Bazooka Joe is not 10 cents anymore. Nothing's 10 cents. Greg is in the Ohio. Hello, Greg. How you doing, Frank? Well, I mean, I, I still have all my marbles, so I guess that's a, that I'm off a to joke. a good start. That was a joke. You're not supposed to ask to leave with that. Yeah, but whatever. That's why I don't mind it. I just want to tell you, no, I'm I'm from Ohio, and I've been listening to both of you, both you and Sliwa. He has his own opinion on things that some I agree with, some I disagree with. Same thing with you. Some I agree with, some I disagree with. That's America, is it not? It it, it is, thankfully, Greg. I I appreciate that wisdom there, Greg. So everybody got that? Everybody write that one down. So Curtis or Sliwa, as uh, Greg says, he's got opinions, some of which Greg agrees with and some of which he disagrees with. And then there's me. The big difference with me and Curtis, according to Greg, is I have opinions. Some Greg agrees with and some he disagrees with. Well, that's very uh, that's very enlightening there, Greg. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. You know, I remember I interviewed a fellow named Solomon King one time, and one day I'm going to do a whole show about Solomon King because the fact that they have never made a movie about Solomon King is one of the great injustices in the world. Uh, they've never made—I mean, there've been some smaller scale films about Solomon King. Solomon King is one of the most phenomenal people who's ever lived, and one day we'll. We'll delve into what makes him so unique, but we're pressed for time and we have to give away $1,000. But Solomon King, I was interviewing him in uh, 2001, and I'm asking him about all these presidents that he claimed to have known. And he said to me, uh, I asked him, what do you think about George W. Bush? That's all I said. What do you think about George W. Bush? This is right after September 11th. 
And basically, Solomon King says to me, how do I compare Bush the father to Bush the son? Well, I think Bush the father did things the way that he thought they should be done. And I think Bush the son is doing the way things the way that he thinks they should be done. It's that level of analysis that I have missed for the last 21 years until I was exposed to Greg in Ohio, thankfully. Uh, hey, we're going to give away $1,000 to the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. You'd be the seventh caller right now. We'll play the $1,000 minute. And if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, you will be the lucky, lucky recipient of $1,000 American. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Boy, do I smell a rat. I was a highwayman Along the coach roads I did ride With sword and pistol by my side Many a young maid lost her baubles to my trade Many a soldier shed his lifeblood on my blade The bastards hung me in the spring of 25 But I am still alive I hate that Matt uh, played this song. Uh, It's not because it's not a great song. It is. It's one of my favorites. But I I hear this song. I just want to hear the whole thing. I mean, who wants to listen to me? Or you, for that matter. When you can hear Johnny Cash and uh, Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson. Oh, my goodness. Um, love, love the highway, man. Love, love, love the highway. Um, but, um, oh, listen to this. It's great. And Waylon Jennings, of course. Um, all right. This is the other side of midnight. As much as I'd love to listen to, uh, Johnny Cash all day, I, uh, we do have a radio show to get on with here, and we have some money to try to give away because it's time for. The Other Side of Midnight presents. It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morocco. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Uh, Let us meet today's contestant, Kathleen, here in the New York City. Hello, Kathleen. Hi, Frankie. Uh, Well, Kathleen, I imagine you've uh, heard this segment before. I have, yeah. Uh, all right, great. So uh, I won't, I won't re-explain the rules to you, um, Kathleen. What, uh, what, why are you awake at this time? What, what brings you to our our program? Well, I'm retired, and um, I often have, you know, sleep whenever I want. But I listen to your show all the time because uh, I'm up. I don't know. I just uh, fall asleep probably at five-ish or something. Okay. All right, good. Well, so is this an right. is this the beginning of your day or the end of your day? Uh, this is the end of the day. The so. end of the day. Okay. Well, I'm always it. curious yeah. because it's the end of my day, too, but there's a whole bunch of people listening now that are just starting their day. So I'm always curious right. where people fall. <laughs> All right. Uh, what, what are you retired from, Kathleen? What kind of work were you in? Well, the uh, the last job I had was in television on a television show. Um, 
the Martha Stewart show. I oh. worked on her television show Very nice. for about seven years, and pretty much after that, I slowed down. <laughs> Did she uh, ever give you any stock tips? No, no. All right. Well, uh, since uh, she kept all those ill-gotten gains for herself, then uh, we're going to do what we can to give you some money. If you, uh, We're going to ask you 10 trivia questions here, Kathleen. Uh, sometimes it seems like they're deceptively easy. That's not the case. No, it's not a trick question. Just say the answer as it comes to you. Don't get nervous. Don't get flustered. Take a second. Right, think okay, about the I'll answer, try. and uh, you'll get it. And if you get an answer right, we're just going to move on to the next question. You ready to go? I am. Okay. How many hours are in a day? 24. How many moons does the Earth have? One. What is the WABC morning show? Um, uh, um, all right, well, I'm sorry. I just can't get that. I uh, just put my mind, yeah. It's two guys' names. Two guys' names. I know, I know, uh. Yeah. Wow. I'm letting you down. But no, I, it's... It's I, I, completely I, I, gone out of my mind. I hear them. I listen to it also sometimes, but it's gone. Oh, uh, all right. Well, I'm sorry, Kathleen. I'm sorry. I was rooting for you to win. Um, it's the Bernie the and Sid show. Is, yeah. Bernie and Sid. What is it? Bernie the, and Sid, that's it. The Bernie and Sid show. Life. It's a great show. Yeah. I mean, it I sounds know. like it's up. It's like a little past your bedtime. That's why you don't get to hear yeah. it. But <laughs> you can listen to the podcast, um, and they do a great job. That's they really right. do. That's right. All right. Well, okay. Kathleen, we're, we're going to uh, try and send you something nice. Give Molly your okay, information, I, if sorry, you would. I let you down. No, it's okay. I feel bad we're okay. not giving you $1,000. You seem like a, a nice lady. Um, all right. All right. Well, well call me again. I, I can't promise you a prize, but uh, call again, and we'll chat, okay? Sure, it sounds good. I'm sure you have some good Martha Thanks. Stewart stories, okay. or at least some recipe tips. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, Kathleen. Hang on. Uh, Molly, grab Kathleen's information, if you would. I was really rooting for her. I, I thought um, I thought she was at least going to get that one. I mean, you think, of the, you know, the, the, there was one show on WABC that people know, other than this one. It's the Bernie and Sid show. They do a great job every morning. But, um, you know, not to be. Molly, grab uh, Kathleen's information if you Oh, Molly has gone. Uh, Molly has left. She's on strike. All right, Kathleen, hang on. Molly will be back, and uh, we'll, we'll get your, your uh, information. Now, back to that Curtis situation. The, you know, he was doing the, um, the, the, he was spinning his web of lies about me, this Frank garbage conspiracy theory. And I'm just amazed that he got all these people to buy into this including this fellow named Stan. I'm concerned about that story yesterday coming out of Staten Island about Frank Morano dropping trash between his property line and his neighbor's property line. I work for the sanitation department. I have a friend that works in that garage down in that part of Staten Island, Staten Island 3. Maybe it's time that we get some enforcement agents down there pronto Monday morning to investigate so we'll call this garbage gate. That's right, Curtis. And there's a rodent problem plaguing the city, as you know. And we don't need that problem to be spread to that part of Staten Island. That's true. Uh, he lives in a very nice section uh, out there in uh, Tottenville section. Very nice section. I do not live there. I've met some way. of his neighbors out there. Very fine people. You're right. They don't need rat infestation as a result of Frank Morano 
uh, pouring trash on his property and his uh, neighbor's property. Curtis, that the guy who told that story yesterday, he sounded like a professional storyteller, the way he paced that story. I was wondering if uh, professional liar within the next remaining part of your show, if you could play it for people who didn't hear it. It was hilarious about the cigar and the uh, ski mask. None of it's yeah, true. The 10 cent, would love to hear the 10 cent cigar that Frank smokes. <laughs> right. And he's talking about with, with uh, cigar aficionados about a Connecticut rapper. That's the only the uh, the kind of cigar he recommends for people comes in a Connecticut wrapper. Have you ever heard them talk about that? Like he's some kind of big shot smoking Connecticut wrapper cigars. Yeah, no, no, no. Frank is. Uh, I find these people. Frank Morano is an enigma, a real enigma. Stan, <laughs> listen to a who's man calling me who an enigma. Will actually collect bottles and cans, so he's cleaning up. This is actually the neighborhood, <laughs> and then uh, get the deposits. But then a guy who, according to the neighbor who called in, actually trashed his own property and the property of his neighbor. Not true. Yeah. With household garbage, empties, returnable empties, and the worst part of it was the soiled diapers, carmine soiled diapers. Oh, yeah, that was the worst because you know how those diapers, especially, they get very ripe in the sun. A 24-pound infant's diapers... Uh, nasty to begin with. And then he was kicking them around, according to the story. He was kicking the bags after he opened them. He was kicking the contents around. I think we all ought to advise Frank. I'll be uh, in his company uh, this afternoon at 12 noon uh, as uh, uh, Judge Landry gets sworn into the bench and is given his black regal robes. I'm going to let Frank know, hey, you better be careful. Your neighbors, uh, they got uh, Elon Musk using one of his many satellites in the sky, honed in right on your house, right on you with a GPS, following you wherever you go. All right. Thanks, Curtis. It was great talking with you. You're doing a great job. And these weekends are made so much more enjoyable by having you on the show, uh, having you on the radio. Especially since people have adhered to what I've asked them to do, which is to rat out Frank. It is your job, ladies and gentlemen, to listen to Frank Morano, the other side of midnight, one in the morning to five, Monday through Friday, if for no other reason than to listen intently at what he is saying and then rat him out to me. I can't listen to all 20 hours. I got to be out there with the guardian angels, so uh, I can listen to some of it. I know many of you would say, well, get it on his podcast. I get it. But I've got some other things to do. So in combination, if we can all collectively, it's sort of like a hobo stew, put all of our information together about Frank and his shows. And this way, I could cold bust him. In this case, you, you heard what his neighbor had to say about him. Yeah, yeah, we got him boxed in. I'm going right. to alert that's Frank that's Morano. That's good. Today. We'll be done. Um, now, look, uh, one, first of all, that's very funny, very entertaining. The I wanna, I'm going to demand, I'm going to talk to management and demand that there be a warning put on, a disclaimer put on Curtis's shows at the beginning. You know how, um, you know, like when you watch certain shows, you know, like Unsolved Mysteries or something, you know, or other other shows, it'll say, uh, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Da, 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 da. 
I want a disclaimer that none of what you're about to hear is true. I want a disclaimer at the top of every Curtis Hour that everything you're about to hear is a total fabrication. That's the kind of disclaimer that I want at the beginning of every Curtis Hour. And, you know, I'm struck listening to Curtis. Um, who, again, it's a very entertaining show, but none of it is true. Is I remember I was, years ago when I was an intern at the Fox News Channel, I worked on a special about the John F. Kennedy assassination. And one of my roles as an intern was you go through archival footage. And I'm going through the archival footage of Arlen Specter. And Arlen Specter was a lawyer for the Warren Commission, and he's the one that came up with the single bullet theory, which is nonsense. It's total nonsense. Nobody uh, – well, I don't want to get a whole single bullet theory thing, but it, it's no nonsense. So when you search the video archives at the Fox News Channel, at least at that time, this is 20 years ago, it brings up all the TV appearances that that person has ever done. And a whole bunch of TV appearances come up of Arlen Specter as I'm searching for him talking about the single bullet theory. And one of the uh, – some of the appearances come up from his running for president in 96 – and I'm looking over this, these search results with the with a senior producer that I was working with. And she turns to me at the time and says, why would I believe anything that this guy says about taxes or anything else if he totally fabricated the thing, the single bullet theory? And you know what? I almost think the same way about Curtis is Curtis is talking about serious issues related to New York and related to. Eastern Europe and all sorts of stuff and interesting stuff. But why would you take anything he says seriously when everything he says about me is a total lie? Oh, whatever. At least it's fun, right? Corey is in the Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. Hello, Frank. Yeah, that's uh, I'm sure that uh, you would take the extra time to go and throw the stuff into your own alleyway and dump it onto your neighbor's lawn. That's right. Either you have some kind of disgruntled uh, neighbor who is can speak very slowly and take your attention, but he fails to take a cell phone with him mm-hmm. and maybe record with a video of you doing this or simply take a snapshot and then he gets all these people. I don't know if they actually believe him. I'm sure he doesn't, but it, it was just really comical to me. Oh yeah. It was definitely funny. Absolutely. Thank you, Corey. Appreciate that. All right. Uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame. When we return, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. We will do 15 seconds of fame and allow you an opportunity to be heard at for 15 seconds. 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. We're talking. 
just is the other side of midnight. So, Matt, is there a way to blame Frank Diaz for the random other noises that we've been hearing for the last minute or so? I will not blame Frank Diaz. There's just a lot going on right at the moment. Really? That's yes. Well, well, behind the scenes. On? What's going I'm, on behind the scenes? I'm handling. All right, okay. I won't press you. Um, you know, we'll allow you to keep your private life private. Uh, all right. Hey, by the way, speaking of things going on at this radio station, I don't want to, you know, tell any tales out of school, but on Friday we had our weekly meeting with our uh, our bosses, and lo and behold, according to you know the the most recent January ratings. The ratings that we had for the month of January in the 12th plus category are the highest ratings we've ever had on this show. Um, there, we in we're by far number one in New York over every station, AM and FM between the hours of one and five AM. WOR, forget about it. They've thrown in the towel. They've given up. I think I don't even think they put on a radio show anymore. They've just given up. They've just said, "All right, we surrender the audience." So I really want to thank you uh, because these are the highest numbers that anybody's ever seen. In fact, we were looking at the graph of these these numbers, and it goes up to twenty, a twenty share. And we're uh, I'll just say we're at a seventeen point eight share right now in twelve plus. Matt said as he's looking at the the graph that they're showing us to us, we're going to have to get a new chart because we are almost literally off the charts in terms of listenership. Highest number we've ever had. Number one show in New York once again. So I want to thank you for that, and it's all made possible by you. If you want to help us grow, uh, you can subscribe to the podcast. Just search The Other Side of Midnight. Wherever you get your podcast, The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, click the subscribe button. And if you give us a five-star review on iTunes, that will help other people discover the show as well. And uh, and share it, share it. If you listen to the show regularly, encourage your friends, even if they can't stay up at this time, listen to the podcast because apparently everyone that is listening to the radio between the hours of one and five, almost everyone is listening to this program. So uh, if people who can't be up at this time aren't being exposed to the show, they can they should be through the podcast. We're doing well podcast wise, but that audience can always grow. So subscribe, The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Share it with a friend. Encourage them to share. And like the Facebook page, facebook.com slash moranofan, facebook.com slash moranofan. And listen to all the other great podcasts at wabcradio.com. All right, time now for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Hey, when Curtis is making fun of you, he's giving you um, advertisement for free. Don't worry about it. It's all good. It's all part of the theater of the mind. And- oh, uh, I'm sorry. I thought you were done there, Tommy. I didn't- you have 10 seconds left coming to you. Come back. Call back, and we'll get him to you. Reserve the balance of his time. Neil on Staten Island. In regards to your listenership, from a Jewish listener to his Amish rabbi, Mazel Tov. <laughs> Thank you. Fred and Yonkers. Hey, Frank, regards to the Frito Whipple campaign, I haven't seen him around from the 80s. Shaman must have thought he was really, really bad. Free Mr. Whipple. Free. Tom in the Bronx. Yeah, I'd like to say I, I like your uh, the comments about China. China has this problem. They have looming deserts over there. They should be concentrating 
on desalinating ocean water and bringing those deserts to life. Jeff in West Islip. Uh, Basement Biden, thanks for hanging around for the weekend. We could have got smoked, and you wouldn't even have been there to press the freaking button. Joe in Queens. Donald Trump should get a gold medal for the his insurrection part two over there in Ukraine. That's all I gotta say. Frankie in Glendale. A duck walks into a bar. Got any bread? No. Got any bread? No. Got any bread? No. No. And if you ask me again, I'll nail your beak to the bar. Got any nails? No. Got any bread? <laughs> Tommy is in Brooklyn for the remaining 10 seconds. Uh, I just want to say I love your show, Frank, and uh, I just want to say one thing. Of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most. Thank you. <laughs> Pete in the Bronx. Guido, give me a call. Sizzamore on Sizzamore. Larry in Brooklyn. Yes, I lost all respect for Curtis Lee when he went on the air with Chris Hahn. You know, just because you want to be on the air, you don't accept any assignment that comes your way. You've got to maintain standards. You know, only thank you for the call there, and thank you for everybody. Only somebody that has never worked in radio would say that. Do you know how difficult it is to get a job in radio? Do you know what you say when they offer you any job in radio? You say yes, because that's what you do. You don't say, oh, I won't work with this person or that person. Come on. Hey, uh, the WABC Early News with Deb Valentine is next. Now streaming video at WABCRadio.tv. Listen to Bernie and Sid from 6 until 10. You never know when they may show up on a trivia question. Frank Moreno, good day. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.